The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is Flight 86 of the Squawk Ident podcast recorded on the 7th of August. 2021 from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's flight, we have the privilege of speaking with an aviator that has a strong foothold in his career progression, where he is getting ready for a qualified upgrade on the Embraer 145. He will share his journey in aviation with us, and we will explore his take on the pandemonium that has flooded our industry over the past few weeks. All this and more aboard Flight 86 of the Squawk Ident podcast. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate and start those virtual podcast engines. Assisting at the controls today is a superb aviator and Squawk Ident co-host. He is a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP and avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently an Airbus pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. He joins us today fresh off two chaotic trips out of DFW. First, his successful IOE, and then a quick Austin trip that turned into a long Austin trip. From his man cave in Flower Mound, Texas, please help us in welcoming our very own Rob D. Rob, how the heck are you? I'm doing well, Tony. How you doing, man? It's good to be back. I'm doing pretty good, man. It's been crazy this past couple of weeks. Oh, I mean, tell me about it. it. It's like people have gone down, lost their minds. It sure has, man. It, it's it's uh, definitely one for the record books. Um, you know, who would have thought? You know, all these uh, delays and cancellations that we're experiencing would be. Uh, something that you'd have after a huge pandemic. It's just, uh, you know, you figure it'd be the other way around where, you know, you'd be able to string string together a good operation and, and you know, recoup all the lost profits and just have a smooth running machine and, and you know, head off into the sunset with a good operation. But it's been crazy, man. We, it's been hard for us to just put together a couple of good days in a row. Yeah. And it's not just over at Legacy or over at yeah. some of the other low-cost carriers that are out there. Uh, I mean, yeah. this is really affecting every 121 operator, at least yeah, here in the U.S. Wide. We're not ready. It's- We've been talking about this rubber band effect for over a year now. We were anticipating this. And it seems like, you know, and I'm not the expert in aviation business, for especially at a, a multi-billion dollar international airline, but it seems like we're management is being, for a lack of a better term, reactive instead yeah. of being proactive. And yeah. there's been a lot of debate, especially out on the flight deck when you're cruising along at 37,000 feet about, you know, 
why weren't they better prepared? If they didn't furlough any pilots or flight attendants, maybe everybody would have stayed current and we could have sprung back. But it's not yeah. that simple. It's not it's just not. them. It's everything yeah. from below yeah. wing services to above wing yeah. services. I mean, contracted yeah. services. It's, and it's honestly, I think that's part of the mess. problem. That's what it is. It really is. Because, I mean, you figure, you know, when, when, uh, we had that drawback in our operation last, what, March or so, and that lasted for eight to 10 months or so. Um, you know, all the contracted services that, you know, all the airlines use, uh, you know, they obviously didn't need the work. Uh, they didn't need to work. Right, let me rephrase that. They didn't have the work uh, because the airlines weren't running their full schedule anymore. So um, they had to cut costs themselves. So they had to lay off people. And now that we have, you know, ramped up our operation and relatively quickly, um, the these contract carriers who most of them you can imagine, you know, their their pay scale, you know, let's be honest, isn't the best. You know, a lot of these are very low, low paying wages. And a lot of these people, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not saying every every job is, but a lot of a lot of the times the government pays more than <laughs> what these contract carriers or contract uh, services would provide. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're having a hard time finding people to come back to work. And um, because of that, uh, there's a lot of services that are just not available to us like we used to have. And, uh, you know, fuelers, um, the uh, food trucks, yeah. people pushing wheel, people around in wheelchairs, um, even just, you know, at our own company, you know, below the wing, the rampers, the, uh, the gate agents. I mean, they're, they're, everybody's, you know, working their butt off. And believe me, the people that are there, they are doing their best to, you know, prevent this from happening. They are working their butts off. A lot of us are working overtime, um, you know, working two or three shifts just to make it happen. Um, but you know, they're, they're giving it their all, but it's just a culmination of weather of uh, short staffing, of over, uh, you know, the company over, um, you know, overloading the operation with flights. It's just, it's, yeah. it's chaos. In a perfect world, this dynamic staffing would work because you would minimize your staffing when the time is slow and then maximize your staffing when you're known to historically be busy. But we're in a whole new world here. And sure. there's no way to know what our trend was last year and compared to this year and staff dynamically. We have to staff on the ready. And unfortunately, yeah. it's creating chaos throughout the system. And then yeah. you can spin it however you want. You can blame uh, holes on the runway due to lightning strikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the truth it's is totally yeah, out of your control. <laughs> it's, you know, and we'll, we might get to, to why one uh, eight right was closed for a while the other day. Yes. I got caught up in yeah. that. Um, yeah. but yeah, but today I am very, very excited. Uh, for a while now I've been talking with our next guest and trying to get him on the show and it finally, our schedules have worked out and cool. life uh, being an airline pilot, that's, sometimes a big challenge especially when priorities come to family and our mm -hmm. next guest is definitely 
a family man. I mean, I hear about his adventures, and I'm like, can I just come over and hang out with you and your kids? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and as we mentioned in the opener, today's guest is a brave father of four, an enduro warrior, an angler, a mechanic, a snowboarder, a cargo pilot, a flight instructor, a ferry pilot, a jumper dumper, a cargo pilot as well. And he has type ratings in the Kinger 350 and the Embraer 145. He is now in the process of getting ready to go through what's called a qualified upgrade over at Sandpiper on the Embraer 145. Please help us in welcoming to the show for the first time, Mr. Pete Tenderenda. Pete, how you doing? Hey, good morning, Tony. How are you? How's it going, Rob? Doing great. Doing good, Pete. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is is pretty neat. It's that that introduction i hope i live up to it you know it sounds really <laughs> really cool you know like I, like i kind of want to meet that guy it's all been a blur you know it's just a daily blur but yeah. i'm doing all right good i'm you know I'm, I'm so happy to hear it and so happy to have you on the show thank you so much for for coming on and agreeing to be with us you know it's very interesting we first met over at sandpiper at the very, very beginning of your career. Do you remember that experience? Yeah. I, I I do. I think we met in Dallas, didn't we? And uh, I think that was our first flight. That was my first IOE flight. They were flying me down to Dallas, I believe. And I was supposed to meet some guy, you know. <laughs> and I don't know where I was supposed to meet him or where I was supposed to go. But uh, I ended up, I think I met you at the Starbucks down in uh, Terminal I don't know, wherever where, Sandpiper flies. Where out. else would you meet Tony? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> getting some good coffee, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was my first, I believe that was my first IOE trip. It was with you. It was, it was out of Dallas, and our first leg was maybe Dallas to, uh, where was it? Birmingham, and then Birmingham to Miami, I believe. And then we had a uh, unscheduled overnight in Miami, and then I think you called a friend. Uh, and we went out uh, to got and got some good Colombian food. It was pretty late at night, and I'm surprised this guy came out and picked us up. But uh, it was yeah. probably about midnight or so. We went and, to uh, the we original went, La Careta. <laughs> we did, right? Yeah. Oh, and then, uh, yeah, and, and this was this was my first Iowa experience with you, and it was really fun. And uh, you made it really fun. You were very professional, uh, very knowledgeable, and I was like, wow, this is a really cool introduction to my airline career. Yeah. And, and just as a side note, that friend that, uh, was very gracious to meet us in Miami, uh, is now the chief pilot for the <laughs> Sandpiper in Miami. I gave is him it? his no IOE, kidding. I think maybe a few weeks before I gave you yours. Um, and I met him and really? he was a really interesting character. He owned a flight school there for many years and uh, ended up selling the flight school after a while but uh he, he said hey i'm teaching people how to fly uh, to to have a career in 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 uh, an airline i might as well go after that myself and so he he did the time and got a job at sandpiper and i gave him ioe and we hit it off and he said hey if you're ever in miami let me know i'll take you out for some good cuban food and about a couple of weeks later, you and I were stuck in miami on a layover um, unscheduled stop yeah. and he's like yeah i'll come pick you up and what do you know? It, was, it was pretty late. I remember we were waiting, waiting a while for a van. And, 
it was probably midnight. I was just in a blur. I was still back in Chicago trying to board my first deadhead, you know, and I already completed a couple flights and now we're sitting at in Miami. I'm sweating. It's hot. You know, I'm in this monkey suit. I'm not used to wearing, you know, yeah. and, oh, yeah. uh, it was a good time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was hotel- just so surprised that he came out. Yeah, the hotel was like, uh, we don't have any rooms for you. I was like, well, this is the hotel that's scheduled. And our, and yeah, they were a new or like newly remodeled hotel by the airport. I remember that was a that was a fiasco, man. It was a fiasco. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm just so surprised he came out and picked us up and it was probably 1 a.m. and we're eating good Cuban food. <laughs> yep. Having some nice. presidentes and, and having yeah. some, some plantains. And oh, my God, that was yeah. fun. So, yeah. Uh, wow. Flashback, man. I, <laughs> I yeah. hadn't thought of that in a while. <laughs> But thank you for bringing that one uh, back to the forefront of my mind. That was a good time. And I believe we went for a run, too, we didn't did. we, on yeah. South Beach? I, I think you dragged me. I think I ran four <laughs> miles that day. I think I got shin splints. And, <laughs> you, know, and you know, you're just kind of going along, you know. I'm running backwards. I'm like, come dragging. on, beat, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I liked it. I liked the energy, you know. So you got to surround yeah. yourself with good people. And I was like, you know what, let's go. I don't care. Let's go. Let's yeah. have some fun. That we was that the same trip where we were in New York? I think we hit all the bases that trip. Yeah, yeah. we went to New York and we we ended I up remember, uh, we ended up in LaGuardia. We and, did, and we did. Yep, and we ended up uh, on a long layover, and we took the train and went to we Hofbra did. House. That's right. That's right. I don't know if that was a, if that was part of that same sequence. I know we flew, we did two sequences together. That might have been uh, for, the second for one. Iowa. Yeah. That might have been the second one that we that we went to uh went to downtown New York. Yeah. 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 I think it was the second one because I I was growing a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I have a photo in my phone. I remember I, I saw it the other day and I was like, oh my God, look at that. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Man. Well, you know, hey Pete, thank you so much um for being here and and here at Squawk Ident, we really focus on the journey of today's aviator and how the marketplace affects that journey. Um, lately, we've been talking a lot about what's been going on in the industry, a lot of the events that have kind of really shaped the pathways to this aviation profession. And what we wanted to focus on a little bit today was your journey and your start in aviation. Now, we were talking about on the pre-show that you got started at a relatively young age, not necessarily because it was something you wanted to do, but because it was something that your older sister was doing. How did that happen? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, I was probably, like I said, 12 or 13 years old. I just remember seeing a picture of myself and it was a picture with myself and a couple of her friends uh, in the background was a, was a Cessna 172. And that was my first flight experience. Um, I went up with her flight instructor as she was getting a lesson. And I, so that was my first time experiencing GA. And that was really neat. I really enjoyed it. It was really cool. I mean, I had no idea what was going on, but uh, I just know I, I just knew that I liked it. And that was like I said, when I was about 12 or 13, so teenager, young teenager. Um, but then I didn't really you know, I kind of just forgot about it and, you know, was being a rebel teen for years until uh, I met my wife and got married. And it was around, I think, 20 years old that I really uh, decided to pursue becoming a pilot, just a private pilot. Um, I really had no intention of becoming uh, an airline pilot. I just wanted to fly my friends around. 
because we were doing these longer road trips. You know, I'm in college. We're doing these road trips. We have a week off. Hey, let's drive to Colorado and go snowboarding. Let's drive to the Florida Keys and go kayaking and camping. Um, and it would take us forever to get to these places. And I was I was living near an airport, South Bend Airport in Indiana. And I could see these airliners taking off and landing. And then just, this idea came to my mind. You know what? If I could fly my friends to these places, we can spend an extra day or two snowboarding or kayaking or having, having a great time. And we could fly back. You know, it'd be a lot quicker. So uh, without further ado, I went and I researched all the information, looked up the FAA requirements and went and talked to a few flight instructors. And one in South Bend said, you know what? I'm not the cheapest. Um, but I will get you done. You know, you come in prepared. I, I will get you done as soon as we can. And I told him, look, this has 40 hours. I'd like to get done in 40 hours. I don't want to waste time or money. And uh, he said he can get me done. And so uh, that's where I started. You went to South Bend. Were you living in South Bend at the time? Or did you travel out there to get this done in 40 hours? Uh, no, I was actually living in South Bend. So I grew up in Laporte, mm. uh, which is just to the west of South Bend. And uh, I got married and my wife and I moved into an apartment in South Bend. So um, so I was living there at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So young couple and you had a wife that was supporting this hobby of yours, <laughs> this this <laughs> aspiration to go uh, play with all your toys up in the air and your friends and yeah i think i think all of us have a similar story to that right wife supporting the uh the student pilot in training yeah yeah she carried she carried me for years you know throughout uh getting private commercial instrument uh i could easily say i couldn't have done it without her yeah, yeah. i think we can all awesome say say that at some Could point all agree to that yeah yeah, yeah. same here yeah and it's all downhill from there buddy <laughs> that's right <laughs> like she took me flying and look what happened um so yeah so that's great that you you kind of you started out you, you know you got that seed planted because your sister was going through now did your sister ever complete her aviation certificates or you know what uh she did a solo she got to solo and she might have, I don't know the full story. I don't have that great of a relationship with my sister. Um, I, I wish it was better. Um, and I know that she's a little bit jealous of, of my career. And so I think we don't talk about it because uh, it brings up bad feelings for her. Because I think she, this was really her, her dream, you know. Um, and it was just something that I just kind of fell into um, and yeah. realized that this is really neat. Um, but yeah, so she got to solo. Uh, she got to solo and um, didn't have a very good experience with that. Ended up uh, being up a little bit longer in the air than she thought uh, and uh, was able to make it down safely. But um, I believe that's as far as she's, she's gotten in her training. Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting point. Um, and I have had students in the past share similar experiences where you know, they really love the idea of flying. They have a passion for it. And then when it comes time to being alone in the airplane or having to perform with a check ride and having to show proficiency, there's something that it, they just get hung up. And unfortunately, it, it leaves a bad experience to where they stop. And it's really, it's sad because you want to help 
these students through. You want to help these individuals get through their goals. And unfortunately, sometimes that happens that, you know, there's check right itis, there's the solo itis, there's all these kind of fears that hold you back on the ground when your only desire is really to soar up in the air. And it's tough. And sometimes it's really the flight instructor that makes all the difference in the world. Now, inevitably, it's the person. It's the individual yeah. that has to make up their mind and decide. And they can't really blame anybody else but themselves because it's you who pushed yourself forward and through it. And if you're not comfortable with something, you just keep at it until you are. You do what you got to do until you are, until you find that confidence. Um, so if, you are, if you're out there listening and you love the idea of having a career in aviation and something is holding you back, whether that's emotional, physical, mental, there is always a hurdle that will be presented in front of you. Even at, even at the top tier stages of this profession, there's always going to be a hurdle. The question is, are you passionate enough to learn and get the tools that you need to get past that hurdle, to become proficient and confident enough to get to it? And I really hope that if you're listening and you've been hesitating, that these kind of stories really are eye-opener. Get out there. Go speak to a flight instructor. If, if you're not getting the answers that, that you want, go speak to another flight instructor. Go speak to a, a DE or a medical examiner and get the answers you need because this is a wonderful profession. At minimum, it's a wonderful hobby. So, yeah. Yeah. And I hope that... Uh, your sister's not too hard on you <laughs> yeah. for, for it, following this career progression, but we do understand, especially yeah. you know, all three of us for have every, been CFIs. For every successful aviation career, everybody who's successful, they all have had their fair of, you know, hurdles and like you said, bumps and bruises along the way. It's, it, it's very rare that you hear somebody just skyrocket to astronaut status in the aviation, <laughs> in the aviation field. You know, I mean, it, it's, there's a, there are a lot of hurdles to, to get through. Um, and, and you, you just have to just like Tony said, stay persistent. Um, you know, keep your eye on the goal. Um, uh, sometimes you, you have to, um, figure out other ways to get around, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and, you know, as long as you do that, you will uh, attain your aviation goals. Absolutely. Agreed. You know, Pete, you're, you got your private and you got it done. Was it in 40 hours? 40.4. Uh, 40. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it, was, it was in 40.4. Uh, and uh, so... I didn't kind of sells that a bonafide Chuck Yeager here. Yeah, right. No, no, it was it wasn't me. It was my flight instructor and and how he told me to prepare. You know, before I started my uh, training, you know, my sister had all these books, so um, she had the Jefferson Private Pilot Manual. Uh, so I read the whole thing before I even started my training. You know, I I went through it. I didn't understand a lot of it, but uh, I went through the whole thing. You know, I, I looked at the, you know, the FA requirements and I was, you know, just like we all are, I think, uh, cheap, you know, <laughs> and I didn't want to waste time or money. Uh, so I read that book. Uh, I remember doing all the questions and answers and learning as much as I could uh, before I went to training. So when he would bring topics up, um, I was relearning 
and then I would go home and study it again. So I learned each piece of information three times. I read it on my own. The flight instructor taught it to me, and then I went home and restudied it and prepared for the next lesson. So I think that that really helped me mentally prepare for each lesson. Uh, and also Flight Simulator. I'm sitting in front of my computer right now, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. I played that the crap out of that when I was a kid. And I learned the fundamentals of flight, really, you know, through that pull up, go up, pull up further, you'll stall, you know. Uh, <laughs> so just aerodynamics, you know, was just uh, kind of instilled in me with uh, with flight, flight simulator, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Oh, that's great. I don't and, know where and, I was going with it. Well, that's it, you. You raise a, an interesting point. Now, there are those that, like Rob was saying, are just freaking Chuck Yeager, that they can do minimal studying, they get in the airplane, they understand the concepts, they understand, you know, the mechanics, and they can fly stick and rudder like nobody's business. And then there are those that just naturally kind of get the regs and they get, they have a good memory and they go, oh yeah, that's, you know, I can require, this is required and that's required. And but most are not that way. Most do not have that ability to just have everything memorized on the, on the spot with minimal studying. Um, I, Pete, am like you. I, and <laughs> Roger does make fun of me a little bit because Roger is a very intelligent individual. And he's one of those that I was just talking about where, yeah, yeah okay, I studied it. You're fine. What are you studying? Why, why are you studying? He, he always makes fun of me for that. <laughs> um, but I like, to, I like to first lay the foundation. And like you said, read through the material, even if you don't get it, if, even if it's like reading German or something, you know, it's like, ah, okay, but it's there. And then later on, even years later, when you're back into it, it all starts to, all the pieces start to fit and they fit easily. And you kind of grasp these advanced concepts a lot better. And then you can retain it because it's been not just in the rote memorization of the material that you just read it, you went, did the lesson, okay, you're done with the lesson, and now I've already forgotten everything because I don't need it. When you, when you predetermine your path by studying and then going back and reviewing the mechanics physically and then going back to study for the exam, it's like a three-part process, and at the end of it, it's not just a rote memorized concept. It is in there. And you will always remember it because now it's part of your long-term memory. That is absolutely the most fantastic way, I think, personally, for myself, and, and it sounds like Pete for you as well, to do things. And I know Rob is, is, has the very same. Very similar. Yeah, yeah very similar. Um, but not everybody learns that way. There are many different types of learning styles. Any uh, CFI or anyone learning to be a CFI, getting ready for that rating, has to read through a FAA authorized book that is the principles of learning. And I actually recommend that for the student pilot as well, because it's important to know how you learn. So you're not wasting time trying to learn in a method or technique that maybe your flight instructor is telling you how to study. But if you don't really learn well that way, it's important to recognize what your principles of learning are. What kind of a what kind of a learner are you? So I highly recommend the the principles of learning book. You're gonna have to read it eventually, if you go down that path anyway. So, yeah, yeah. And thank you for sharing that with us, Pete. Um, you actually yeah. after you got your private, you ended up with some extra hours in the bank from the flight school, and you ended up 
taking a couple flights. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I think uh, when I originally paid for my uh, private pilot's license, I took out a loan. I didn't have all the money, of course, you know. So uh, I think they quoted me seven or ten thousand dollars. I think I ended up spending seventy six hundred, to be honest. I, I don't know why that number sticks out, but um, and I paid for maybe fifty. I think I paid for fifty hours. Uh, so I must have. So I finished up at forty hours, forty point four, I believe. And uh, I had either five or 10 hours left, I can't remember. Um, and uh, so I went out to fly that, um, you know, to actually use my rating. Um, and some of those hours, my wife just got a job in Wisconsin. Uh, she finished up college and got a nursing degree. And um, so she actually got a job in Wisconsin where she used to live. And I flew her from um, South Bend, to Wisconsin, she'd work and stay with her sister up there for a week at a time. She worked seven days on, seven days off. So I flew her up there a few times and back. Uh, and on one of the occasions coming back to South Bend, um, I was parking the airplane, you know, tying it down and getting out of there and having a great time, but realizing I was burning through my hours and I was going to have to start paying for this. You know, I already paid for this. Um, and I saw these guys get off this jet, you know, this really cool, fancy, I don't know, it's probably beach jet or a citation. And uh, these two guys walk off. They have nice white shirts They're tucked in. They have these cool pants, nice shiny shoes, these cool things on their uh, shoulders here, you know, and, uh, and these cool pilot sunglasses. And I realized, I was like, holy cow. It didn't even cross my mind, you know, up until that point right there. Those guys were getting paid to fly. They were getting paid have this much fun and i was having to pay for all of this you know and it just didn't make sense to me i go you know what i want to get paid to fly and that was it you know <laughs> and uh since you know and uh then i looked into everything else what do i got to do what's the easiest way to get paid to fly and um you know i mean originally like i said it was just to fly my friends around but i i realized that i was mistaken in that it was way too expensive to fly my friends around the country what was i thinking you know they're broke you know or they're they're as broke <laughs> as i am you know <laughs> so we're not going to split this you know it's going to be thousands of dollars to get to colorado and back and then also try to pay the resort fees to go snowboarding or whatever it was so um so anyways after that i uh decided i want to get paid to fly and uh went down the rabbit hole of chasing this aviation bug i guess and uh, spent lots of money and went to, did lots of studying. And over the course of a few years, I got all my ratings. And I'm um, sure we can discuss that. And uh, it was a great time. I really, really enjoyed learning. And I really enjoyed getting all these ratings. Yeah. Well, so what was the next step for you? I mean, here you were, you had 10 hours to play with. You were running out of time that you had prepaid, and now you see this, you experience this feeling that, all right, this is for me, this is what I want to do. How did you progress from there? Okay, so we were living in South Bend at the time. This was in Indiana, and uh, so I got my license in September. I still had to finish. I, I graduated in December. My wife got a job, so she was already working in Wisconsin, so she was staying with her with her sister and uh, we needed to move. So I actually lived in Indiana while she lived with her sister in, uh, in Wisconsin. 
and was working. And uh, the next step was moving to Wisconsin. Um, so we, after I finished school, it was in, uh, I think December of 08 is when I graduated uh, college. And then we moved to Wisconsin. I moved there without a job. My wife had the job. She was supporting me at the time. And um, I needed to find a job and I needed to find something to do. So uh, I was new to aviation and my flight instructor got me signed up on like AOPA, I believe, you know, pilot or student pilot. And so I was surfing on their website and I saw something about volunteer opportunities, you know, because I wanted to create a new world for myself, a whole new group of friends, you know, because I, I, I grew up in northern Indiana. All my friends and family were there and I was leaving, you know, uh, you know. So uh, I found this this volunteer opportunity through AOPA, uh, this local small airport, uh, Capitol Drive Airport, and just east, I'm sorry, just west of Milwaukee, uh, that were searching for volunteers to help run their FBO throughout the day. It was all volunteer operated, and uh, they needed somebody to open the doors, and, and if an airplane come, came, uh, pump the gas, sell the gas, and just be there. Uh, uh, mow the grass at the airport. Um, so I went there and uh, started volunteering and it was just filled. If, if you go today, there's at least three or four old guys sitting there, old pilots sitting there drinking coffee and just hangar flying. And it was so much fun just to be in that world. Everybody had an airplane, you know, there was ex airline pilots, military pilots, uh, GA pilots, uh, people who've owned airplane renters, students, and uh, it was just a great place to go and hang your fly and talk. And, um, and that's, and that's kind of the next step, you know, so I went there and got involved and I needed, or I realized I was going to be pursuing this career. That, that was the whole point. I'm pursuing this career, but I need to build some time. I was at 40 hours. I needed to find an airplane to rent and I needed to build, uh, I believe it was cross country time for your instrument rating. Is that correct? Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, 75 hours I, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a Cherokee, uh, 140 there that I, uh, got checked out in and I had a credit card with a big credit limit and I flew for a year you know, and I had the most fun, you know, I flew all over the place, uh, just renting and building cross country time and also trying to make it as cheap as I could trying to split time with other people that I met at the airport there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And so you ended up joining a flight club over at Charlie 89 or Sylvania airport in Wisconsin. How did you get in? How that's, did you get involved with that? that? That's correct. Yeah. So there was this really new, uh, there was this flight school and they had new airplanes or so. So I got my time. I spent a year flying and doing all this fun stuff. And now, now it was time to pursue the, uh, instrument rating, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm trying to find the uh, cheapest, most quick way to get this rating. Um, and this place was fairly new. Um, it was called Eris Aviation and uh, Sturdivant, Wisconsin, Charlie 89. Um, and they had a flight simulator. Uh, I think it was a Frasca 172 G1000. And they had... Uh, a Cessna 172 with the exact same setup. So I could go and spend half of my training in the simulator and then go finish up the rest of it in the airplane, yeah. you know? Um, 
And so they also quoted me a very cheap price. And it was, it was kind of a drive for me. It was about an hour from my house. Uh, but I believe I spent uh, maybe $4,000 on the instrument rate. And I, I thought that was relatively cheap. Yeah. And were you working throughout this process where you were? I wa- yeah, that's right. I was. So after I moved to Wisconsin, I was unemployed and I was just an airport bum for a few months. And um, before I moved, I was, my last summer job was spreading fertilizer for True Green in South Bend. And my boss told me if I ever needed a job, just to give him a call. So I moved to Wisconsin. I didn't have a job. I was an airport bum for a few months, uh, hanging out, just making new friends in the aviation world. And I realized, okay, I, I need, you know, I got a degree, you know, this is 2008 and, uh, I got a degree, you know, I should, should get a job. And I interviewed with, with a few, uh, nonprofits, you know, just to do some accounting work. And I, I didn't get the job because I was outbeat by guys who had previous, uh, you know, tons of experience. So I, I, I suckered up and I called my boss over at True Green Lawn Care Place. I said, Hey, look, I'm here in Wisconsin. I need a, I need a job. You know, could you, you know, put a referral in for me at the local True Green? So he did. I went there and they asked me if I wanted to do spread fertilizer or, uh, or sit or do sales. And I said, well, I already know how to spread fertilizer. I, I don't know anything about sales. So I chose sales and they hired me as a salesman. Uh, for True Green, and I went door to door selling lawn care, making people spend money on their grass. Nice, um, and that was that was really cool. That really uh, changed my life. Uh, you know, honestly, because I still have this small stutter, and I was very nervous to meet new people, to talk to new people, and and to speak in public. You know, uh, let alone go up to a stranger's house and have them give me eight hundred dollars for the grass. You know, but it it kind of broke open the shell. It was kind of a life-changing event you know getting a a degree uh getting a private pilot's license and you know just breaking out of my shell and learning how to communicate um so it was yeah it was all really neat um and yeah so i was working at the time that was your original question i was working as a lawn care salesman while i was going through my uh training and that's interesting because as a pilot you know communication is one of the languages that we have to become proficient in. And a lot of non-pilots don't really understand what that means. But when you're at the controls of an airplane and you've got, you're in busy airspace and the radio traffic is nonstop, let's just say New York center and, and you have to get the word in and get out and communicating, it becomes a skill, an art form, if you will. Um, so at this time that you spent door to door working on communicating and better ways of communicating, actually, not only does it help you in your aviation career in terms of radio communications, it also helps you with interpersonal communications with your co-pilots or your captains or your first officers or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I, it all lends itself to a successful career. And that's, thank you for sharing that because that, that really sure. does give us a little bit of an insight on how it's not just flight training. It's not just nonstop. I'm not working. All I'm doing is spending time. I mean, you could go that route. Some of us have done that. It's extremely expensive, not just for the, uh, the cost of the training in such an impacted way, but also the fact that you're not bringing in an income possibly during that time of training. It, it really does hurt 
Um, and every pilot out there has had to struggle with that cost of training. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I would, you know, that just brings up a point. I remember I was, uh, one decision away from, from going to ATP flight school. It was, it was right before I decided to go to this, this other flight school to do my instrument rating. Uh, you know, and that was taking a huge loan out for, uh, whatever, 50, 60, $70,000, whatever they quoted me, you know, but I was on the phone with the lady and then she said, okay, you know, everything's set up, you know, all you got to do is just say yes and we'll get the ball rolling, you know? And I, and I didn't feel a hundred percent comfortable with it. I remember I was in my driveway on the phone and my wife was next to me and uh, she might've even been pregnant with our first uh, child at the time. And I remember I would have to leave. I would have to leave her and do flight training for however long, wherever, wherever ATP flight school was in Chicago, Tampa, or I don't know what their locations are, but, uh, it just didn't feel right, you know? So, um, I didn't do it that way. And, uh, I decided to go with a local FBI or, or local FBO route and, uh, stay at home, you know? Yeah. And, you know, fortunately my wife was there to support me with it. Yeah. You're very fortunate. And that route actually paid off because, you know, we, we kind of, teased your experience in the intro but my god but what have you not done in aviation you know your journey <laughs> continues on in was it wakasha uh wakasha yeah so what's this, wakasha so what's i got my... wakasha what's this uh all these uh wisconsin wakisha. names <laughs> wakisha wisconsin wakisha wakasha have you seen the movie grumpy old men that isn't that where they're from wakasha oh is it Oh, you haven't Holy seen? Cow. Oh man, that's a I've great movie. That, by no, the I've way. seen the movie. I've seen the movie, but I don't know if. Yeah, that's. I'll have to rewatch it. That's kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. No, no, one minute. She got big thighs. No, no. Then what's the problem? If I was a young fella like you, I'd be mounting every woman in Wabasha. Anyway, I didn't mean to distract okay. you, but you don't no. hear much about that unless you know. I'm like, oh my god, it's in a movie. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'll have to look into that. Uh, I like watching older movies. It's kind of, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, yeah, I was working for True Green and uh, I stayed there for about a year, just saving up money. I got the instrument rating and um, the next was the commercial rating, right? I had to pursue that. Um, and I interviewed for a manager position at, at, at the lawn care company. Um, and they said I could, no, it was me. It was between me and another guy. They chose the other guy and uh, for the manager position, the sales manager position. And so they chose him and I said, okay, cool. That's fine. Uh, I'm going to get out of this. And I'm going to pursue aviation even further. I'm going to quit this good paying uh, sales job and go uh, fuel airplanes and be a ramper <laughs> park airplane and just meet pilots and just make a uh, book full of names, right? And so I decided to do that in a, in a, in a week later um, that that guy quit and they offered me the manager position at, at the lawn care place. And I declined it. I said, sorry, I've already made up my mind. I'm not going to take the manager wow. position. I'm going to go fuel airplanes. And they thought I was crazy. <laughs> you know? And, um, but it was great. It was the best move I've probably ever made. It was the best job I've probably ever had. It was so much fun. I went and fueled airplanes. There was a flight school there. Uh, I got to know the flight instructors. 
uh, every day I was talking to pilots, you know, they would get off the airplane. I'd, I'd park the airplane. I would drive them to the hotel. You know, uh, these are all charter pilots, GA pilots. And I would ask for advice every single ride. You know, I would say, Hey, look, I'm pursuing aviation. What's your, what's your, uh, advice, you know? Um, and, uh, anyways, so I, I did that. And I also at that, at Waukesha, uh, that's where I did my commercial pilot training. And actually, uh, my instructor is now at, uh, legacy airlines and he was actually at sandpiper as well he flowed oh cool so um yeah yeah small world but it is yeah definitely wow so you're so you that know, was what, a commercial yeah what amazes me about this story is your career could have gone a whole different route if you would have been selected on the first go with that manager position you could be right. managing yeah. true green right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's right i would have had a group of sales guys underneath me Nothing you know it's lawn and, and lawn uh, care accessories i'll tell you what <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good yeah yeah no kidding right uh i i left that job just to go fuel airplanes but man i loved it i i could see myself you know retiring just hanging out at an airport talking to guys and yeah. being around airplanes and you know it was uh it was a lot of fun yeah, that's quite an addicting lifestyle is hanging around, <laughs> hanger talking and hanger flying for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Now, after your commercial, how, what was the progression? Were you immediately flying for hire or did you continue your education with aviation? Okay, cool. So here I am. I got a commercial pilot certificate, right? Um, and I believe now my wife's pregnant with our second son. And... <laughs> All I wanted to do, so I finally made it to this point. I have a commercial pilot certificate, you know, and I was looking into, you know, what can I do? What are what are the first jobs? What can you do? All I wanted to do, and I haven't done it yet, <laughs> is is tow banners in Florida, listening, you know, have a Bose headset on, listening to some music, 500 feet over a beach, and just cruising around, just towing banners, and I could get paid to do it, and I wanted to do it so bad, you know. Uh, but I couldn't leave. I, my wife had a great job here in Wisconsin. We were pregnant. Uh, and we, my wife said, no, we're, there's no way we're moving to Florida. So you could tow banners. You know? And <laughs> and I wasn't about to leave her just for that. Right. So, uh, uh, anyways, I was like, well, crap, well, there goes that idea. Um, and so I had to look, look into other opportunities. And I, you know, after talking with everybody, all the pilots said, get your flight instructor certificate. Um, you get a flight instructor certificate and you can work just about anywhere. Um, and I guess that was a little bit more professional and that was, that's the route to go. It's just tone banners. I mean, I mean, no, I mean, nothing against guys who just did that, but I mean, it's a lot of fun. That's all I wanted to do. But, you know, personally for me, I had to stay home and I pursued the flight instructor, flight instructor certificate, CFI. And, uh, as soon as I got done with that, actually, uh, we were talking, like you said, in the pre-show, uh, as soon as I got done with that that afternoon um i made the phone call and i got a job as a flight instructor as soon as i passed that check right you know for you nice. it was banner towing rob did you I have went, a did you have I a just, dream job that you didn't get a chance to do in terms of aviation <laughs> i think every anything that involved flying was a dream job for me <laughs> uh beggars couldn't be choosers you know i i i you know when i got the job as a flight instructor 
I mean, I was ecstatic. I was like, this is awesome. I had no, really had no goal in aviation as I plugged through the ratings other than just to get my CFI certificate and, and kind of like Pete said, just to fly, you know, just to be able to fly around and uh, get paid. And uh, so, you know, my story, um, you know, kind of takes off from there. I I'd had no aspirations to even join an airline. Um, it just so happens that they were hiring and my instructor told me, Hey, now's a good time to apply for an airline. Cause they're hiring. And I was like, okay, you know, how do I do that? So, and then, you know, a week later, you know, I'm, I'm at in dock for Sandpiper. So that's kind of how it went for me. I mean, I, mine was dumb luck. So, um, <laughs> I don't know what else to add to that. That's how it was. Yeah. Yeah. For me, something that absolutely intrigued me and I, and I, to this day, think it's extremely interesting. Um, I wanted it to be a crop duster. <laughs> oh yeah. I wanted yeah. a tail dragger oh, yeah. crop duster. I wanted to come yeah. in, yeah, you know, it just totally, yeah. but I, that never yeah. panned out. Yeah that, just... that, that, yeah. that cross, you know, I actually got a ride in an air tractor, um, before I started flight training and it was when I was in the military, uh, based out in uh, Clovis, New Mexico, uh, one of my uh, uh, friends had a farm and they had they irrigated everything or, you know, they fertilize it with an air tractor. And they're like, hey, you want to go for a ride? I'm like, OK, sounds cool. <laughs> and whoa, that was cool, man. We're flying underneath telephone lines. I mean, the <laughs> wheels are like, you know, a foot and a half above the crops. And we're just, you know, it's a, it, it was a totally different. Uh, well, I've never I've never been really in an airplane other than an airliner up until that point. So that was like, you know, whoa, we're doing like these super, I don't know what you call them, Illumin moves, you know, climb up, bank over, come back to Chandel's. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I was just fighting fighting to hold back my lunch, you know. <laughs> oh. It was just good time. Yeah. And and you know, for those that are in GA now and you're going through these maneuvers and you're doing S turns. And you're doing, you know, chandelles and yeah. turns around a point and stuff. And you're thinking, oh, do I really need to like get um, enjoy it while you can? <laughs> because oh, once you start fun. getting into jet airplanes and swept wing aircraft, yeah. forget it. Yeah. You're not doing any of that. <laughs> not yeah, anymore. Those are fun days. <laughs> yeah, those are actually really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you ended up getting a job. You know, you, you took a quick course for your CFI, you went down to St. Louis and got your quick course taken care of, get your CFI knocked out. Did you get your CFI and that's it? Or did you progress to a double I and MEI later on down the road? Yeah. Um, well, I got, I, that afternoon I called and I was hired as a flight instructor at uh, Sylvania Charlie 89. And I worked there uh, as a regular flight instructor for uh, probably about a year or so, or maybe six months. And and then they offered to, uh, to give me the, uh, the double I, you know, we had the simulator. And so, uh, while I was working for that company, uh, I did my training, uh, for the double I and then got the double I through them. You did your CFI worked for a while, got your double I at a flight school. And how did that turn into flying otters? Okay. Yeah. So, um, at that local airport, at that same airport, there's a jump operation. Um, and uh, they had a King Air, and they had a couple incidents, and and finally they had one accident uh, where the the King Air was was uh, was totaled, I, I could say, 
And um, the flight school I was working with, there were some complications, uh, you know, with with the owners and with the flight instructors. Uh, you know, you hear there are some bad apples in aviation, and this just wasn't the greatest place to be. Um, so actually, we all we all left in in one you know one day. They wanted to re re or they wanted us to re-sign a contract, and um, we realized that they were just kind of stringing us along and not paying us properly. Uh, and you know, is I spent some time there and it was time for me to move on. And, uh, at the local airport there, they're flying big airplanes. Uh, they had a King air, you know, they're, uh, they had a twin turbine aircraft. And that's what I needed. I needed some multi-time. Uh, so actually before I left the flight school, I went and got my, uh, multi-engine add-on certificate. And that was, uh, at a place in Traverse city in a old Piper Apache, I believe it was. Um, and that was fun. That was a lot of fun. You can get that done. Uh, I don't know, three, four days. Oh. Uh, you know, you come and prepared, you get your ratings or I'm sorry, your tests all completed. So I went and got that. As soon as I got that done, uh, I, I walked over to the flight or not the flight school, the, the jump operation. And I talked to the owner and said, Hey, um, I'd like to be your skydive pilot, you know? And he said, well, we just crashed your King Air. We, <laughs> we are looking into getting a twin otter. Um, and he said, uh, he said, okay. Uh, he goes, I'll try to get you some flying, uh, to build up some time. Uh, he goes, uh, I'm part of this network where they move, you know, skydive aircraft around the country and I'll get you involved in that and we'll get you some time and get, get you some experience. So, uh, my first flight in a twin otter, well, so, so probably a month later, this is in December. Um, I'm unemployed. I left the, I left the flight school, uh, I was collecting unemployment and it's December. Uh, my wife's at work. Um, I'm at home watching our two sons, I believe at the time. And, uh, I get a call from the skydive operator. He says, Hey, there's a twin otter leaving Florida tomorrow morning for Mexico. And, uh, he goes, if you want to go, you could, uh, you could help fly it. You know, uh, you could be the co-pilot. And, uh, so I said, okay, when's it leaving? He said, tomorrow morning at like 9 a.m. And this is probably noon the day before. And so I had to call my wife. I had to figure out babysitting. And I said, honey, I'm going to Mexico. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to fly a twin otter to Mexico. You know, and she and I said, it's, it's, but it leaves from Florida. <laughs> you know? So here I am in Wisconsin in the middle of winter. Um, and I took the kids up to the babysitter and I actually took a motorcycle. I was so cheap. I took a motorcycle. Uh, the roads were clear to the Milwaukee airport cause I could park it for free. I didn't know how long 20 degrees outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't know how long I was going to be gone or, you know, cause they were, I guess they were bearing the airplane down there. We had a part for another crash King here that was in the airplane. And they were going to train the new guy there in the Twin Otter while the King Air was getting fixed. So I didn't know how long I was going to be there. Um, so I just took a backpack on, on the motorcycle, drove to Milwaukee. I paid for the ticket from Milwaukee to, uh, where do we go? Milwaukee to Atlanta. I was on Delta. Uh, Milwaukee to Atlanta, Atlanta to Miami. And then I landed in Miami around midnight. And I took a cab up to uh I don't know. I remember it was like $190. It was crazy. Uh, but I needed to get this time. Right? Wow. <laughs> I was like, this is my, this is my in. I'm flying a twin out of Mexico. What? Yeah. You know? And, um, so I paid, uh, for a, a ride up to this local airport, got in around one, 1 AM. And, uh, 
And I didn't even know where I was supposed to be or who I was supposed to meet. So I'm looking on Google Maps. I open my phone and I find some big airplanes that look like Twin Otters on Google Maps and uh, crawled around the fence of the airport and started walking around. And I found a Twin Otter and uh, I crawled in. I had a sleeping bag with me and I fell asleep. I woke up in the morning, the airplane's, you know, moving around. It was getting towed and getting fueled. And I, you know, I poked my head out and I said, hey, is this? this airplane going to Mexico <laughs> you know, and, the, and the ramper's like, yeah, the pilot's going to be here in a few minutes. So, uh, so I met the guy and, uh, we, that was my first, uh, uh, twin, or that was my first multi-turbine <laughs> flying, you know, and the pilot I was flying with, he just, he just fell asleep. I mean, he, I mean, he took off. I was just flying the pink line, you know, and then, I mean, he was teaching me along the way as well. Yeah. But, uh, and then we flew to Mexico. So yeah. <laughs> what an amazing story. <laughs> Damn, man. Yeah. So, was, okay. Uh, let's see here. You hopped the fence, you slipped aboard an aircraft. You had no idea whether that aircraft would go. Okay. Talk about beach bum, baby, or uh, airport bum. <laughs> yeah. Young and dumb. Young and <laughs> dumb. But that's awesome. That's a story. Anything, yeah. Anything to get the time, right? I mean, that's kind of yeah. how it was. Yeah, that's yeah, how we were. That's right. And that's, that's it. How and that's how right. the that segment of your journey began is uh flying around, ferrying aircraft around and building time and twins and and that led to another job, same place, being a jumper dumper. What's a jumper dumper? A jumper <laughs> dumper, yeah. So I I I got a little bit of time flying that. Uh they got their the, that company finally bought a twin otter that spring and i wasn't the i wasn't the uh, only pilot you know they hired another guy who had plenty of time in a twin otter you know here i am freshly minted and i was just kind of the backup they had a 182 so i flew that and i was trying to learn as much as i could in the twin otter um and then when they could i would fly that with an instructor and do jumper loads. so I, I probably flew that otter i probably got about 100 hours in it uh you know over the course of the year uh, but primarily I was flying the 182, but the twin otter was, was where it was at. You know, that was the fun one to fly. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I flew for them and, um, flew the twin otter when I could the 182 most of the time. They actually also ended up, uh, having me fly, uh, at other drop zones. Like, uh, you know, they I mean, they're all kind of tight knit. And if another drop zone needed a pilot, you know, if they had a, had an event going on, uh, they would send me with the airplane and I would go fly it at, at this other drop zone uh, for the weekend. Nice. And I remember one, one year I spent, uh, I think once a month I flew up to, to Door County in Wisconsin uh, and flew up there uh, as just their fill-in pilot for a weekend once a month. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. You know, I was able to take the airplane up there. Uh, they put me up at the drop zone owner's house up there, right on uh, Lake Michigan, fly jumpers for the weekend and fly home. It was, uh, it was kind of, kind of fun but after doing that for uh about a year you know i realized that uh you know skydiving is fun but it wasn't paying the bills you know i'm having a great time my wife's working her butt off uh we've got two kids and i'm doing everything i can to get flight time but i'm not getting paid hardly anything you know um and skydiving the world of skydiving it's great i love it i wish i could retire doing it it's a lot of fun um but it wasn't the professional career that I was after, I guess, you know, um, I realized that, uh, there's a lot more to this aviation industry and, uh, you know, professionalism. And, uh, so I needed to pursue something else. Um, and a friend of mine who worked at the flight school that we worked at in Sylvania, 
he he left there as well. He didn't want to sign the new contract, so he went to uh, another company and was flying charter. He was flying charter. Uh, he was a charter pilot for him, and he said, "Hey, look, we can we can bring you in. We can bring you on." Um, and he goes, "Come on as a flight instructor, and then I'll get you in the, into the charter department." So I, I came on as a flight instructor there. Uh, they paid more. They paid appropriately. Um, and then he got me into flying charter in a Cessna 414, I believe it was. Yeah, Cessna 414. So that was my first 135 uh, charter operator. And I flew maybe a couple hundred hours with them. And they also had a King Air. And I did a couple 91 trips sitting in the right seat um, in that King Air. Uh, after working for them for probably year, year and a half or so, um, they weren't pursuing any additional charter opportunities they were only riding out the customers that they had you know and taking care of them and i wanted to uh go to school for the king air and um i wanted to sell more charter you know i had the sales experience you know i said hey look let's let's get this charter operation up and running uh, and I and I remember talking to the owner. I said, "Hey, you know, look, let's let's do this. Let's get this thing going. Let's let's sell some more charter." And he said, "Look, Pete. He goes, uh, he goes. You're the type of guy who's gonna who's gonna go on and fly for other people and have a great career. Blah blah blah." He goes, "I've already done that here. Um, he uh, uh, he had his heyday, so he was getting ready to retire. He was getting ready to sell the business. He wasn't interested, you know." In, in in pursuing any further opportunities. Uh, so that's when I realized that I needed to kind of move on to the next step. Yeah. And the next step, you know, you were interested in the King Air. And how did you go from that to actually flying a King Air? Well, um, so after realizing that they weren't going to send me to school to fly the King Air to get, you know, this this more valuable twin turbine time. Um, I had a friend who uh, got hired at this local, uh, uh, this local cargo company and uh, out of Milwaukee, uh, that was uh, Freight Runners Express. And uh, they flew beach uh, model 99s uh, for cargo. And uh, they also had a two King Air 350s um, that they operated charter in. And, um, so I said, okay, great. I'll go there. I'll, I'll interview with them. And, uh, so I did, I, I got a position as a captain on the beach 99 airliner and, uh, well, we call it the air or it's the model airliner, but it was gutted. It was, it was a cargo airplane, you know, uh, there's no seats back there, just a big open flying tube. Um, and after doing that for a year, I was able to uh, maneuver into the King air 350 as a charter pilot. Uh, so I flew uh, charter for them and also filled in on the cargo side. Um, then they ended up getting a King Air 200, and I went to school for that. Uh, I also became an instructor for that company. Uh, instructed, did IOE, uh, flew the King Air 200, the 350, and filled in on the 99. It was a lot of work, uh, but it was a great, great experience. I I, uh, I learned a lot at that company. That was the first you know, real job, 135, single pilot. IFR, Northern Wisconsin, you know, um, that was the first real job, you know, professionalism, you know, that was, that was where I learned a lot. 
Yeah. And what's amazing to hear your journey is that we're sitting here, we've been listening to you explain how your journey progressed. And I'm thinking, man, this guy's been flying for 30 years. This is this is an amazing career that you've had, yeah. but yet we haven't even scratched the surface. What? How many years elapsed from when you first got your private pilot license to when you ended up leaving Freight Runners? Okay, so I got my private pilot license in 2008. Uh, I think I, and I, I left Freight Runners uh, 2017. So you in know, nine so. years, you amassed all this experience from, from flying, you know, 172s and 185s and, and all this to King Airs to Beach 99s, you know, amazing, this progression that you've had. You never, even though you spent years at particular places, you never really got stuck growing roots. You always were looking forward to the next step because you had an end goal in mind. And that end goal was to fly for an airline. And that experience and opportunity came up when? Well, uh, when I was at the freight company, um, I realized that a lot of the guys uh, were leaving. Everybody was leaving. You know, the airlines started uh, this big pilot shortage that everyone talks about, you know, uh, started happening. The regionals were starting to offer uh, crazy amounts of money, uh, you know, to come on and, 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 and to fly with them. So uh, a lot of my friends at the cargo place, uh, they left, you know, uh, you know, every month or so, another guy was leaving and, uh, you know, he's going to this regional, he's going to this regional, he's going to this 135 operator. You know, um, it, it started booming. The industry really started booming, you know, and um, I couldn't leave Freight Runners. I could have. I could have. I could have left a long time ago um, and went to the airlines, but I just couldn't afford to. Uh, the, they they paid me really well to fly all three airplanes and to instruct. And uh, I spent that time uh, just paying off all the debt that I accumulated, uh, you know, paying for all these ratings. So when I was in a position where I had this debt paid off, uh, and that was after about four years, uh, that's when I realized, okay, now I can take a pay cut, even though, uh, even though the regionals are paying, you know, uh, we're paying uh, the most they ever did at the time, it was still a lot less than I was making. So it was going to be a pay cut for me to leave my current position to go to the airlines. Um, but after paying off the debt, that's when I realized that, okay, look, we're finally in a position where we can take the pay cut. And in the long run, you know, the airlines, that's a career move and uh, you can make a lot of money. So um, in 2017, I left Freight Runners and I interviewed with uh, Sandpiper Airlines. And we're going to hear a lot more about your journey in aviation, your progression through the 121 carrier and get your take on the chaos that's happening all over the industry right after the break.
And ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, we've been talking with Pete Tenderenda and his journey in aviation. And I got to say, you know, and Rob, correct me if, uh, you know, you feel differently. This guy is, had his hands in every single cookie jar <laughs> in <amazing>. Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really inspirational. It's really amazing to hear his story. Yeah, it makes me feel lazy. <laughs> I know, me too. <laughs> well, Pete, you know, your your journey continued in 2017 when you were hired on at Sandpiper. And that's where your journey and my journey met. We already talked about on the, the intro of the podcast, this, this episode, that, you know, we met during IOE. And uh, I was giving you IOE. It was part of one of the highlights of my career anyway over at Sandpiper is that time when I got to meet all these wonderful people and you know when you fly along and you you know you kind of like just go through the motions and you and you talk to people and you find out a little bit about them uh, that's one thing but when you are as part of a crucial part of their journey as an IOE check airman is where you don't really ever forget your Czech airmen, especially your your first ones, <laughs> you know, your first trip on IOE. Um, those trips are special. You know, easy or not, challenging or not, those trips are special. And, you know, thank you for being a part of that for me. Um, and our trip, as we mentioned, was a little bit unorthodox. We ended up having some cool experiences in both Miami and, and uh, later on flying together again through New York. But let's focus on how that progression was for you. Here you were experienced. You had quite some time both in sales and in aviation and in, as a flight instructor. And now you were going through your first 121 ground school. What was that experience like? Well, you know what? I did a lot of research before choosing Sandpiper as my uh, airline to go to. Um, everybody was hiring, you know, uh, everyone's regional was hiring. Um, there was a lot of 135 operators hiring. There were cargo operations hiring. Um, at that point, you could get a job anywhere. You know, and so um, after talking with some people um, and doing research, I chose Sandpiper. And uh, the one thing that I did not research was the training department. I've always heard, okay, airline training is great. You know, um, it's an airline. How could it not be great? And I tell you, my first uh, week there was absolute chaos. I was part of the biggest class uh, that they've ever had. And uh, the company wasn't prepared. They weren't prepared for us. And it raised a really big red flag. for me. And I was, I almost left. Um, there were some red flags that first week. And I, I couldn't believe that I was a part of this and this was how it was. So uh, my first week, IOE, um, you know, they were just overwhelmed and I was trying to uh, be at peace with that and to participate and graduate. Um, but like I said, it was chaos and I almost left that first week. I'm, I'm glad I've, I've stuck around 
you know, uh, because I am where I am now, but uh, it was eye opening. Yeah. And so do you think that the struggle was because the schoolhouse was overwhelmed with just being bulging at the seams with as many people that were there trying to get through there at that time? Of course. Yeah, of course. I think their normal class size was somewhere in the 20s. I don't know. Uh, what was your class size when you were hired, if you don't mind me asking? Or both of you? Yeah, Rob, you went first. What was your... Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think I had a class of... It was small. I mean, you know, Indoc was big, but we had... Uh, once we got through Indoc, I think it was um, only like 12 people or something like that. So it was a small class. Yeah. I got, I got hired in December of 2006. The company's goals were to hire 700 pilots in 2007. It was going to be the most pilots they have hired uh, in a year since prior to 9-11. And uh, during our indoc, which was day one, indoctrination, uh, we had 42 people in the class. We had to, and at the time, we were at the Legacy Training Center. So we were upstairs in the Simbe, and the classrooms were big. They, they removed the partition wall between two classrooms and made one big classroom. And they had to bring in chairs from other <laughs> rooms for everyone to have a place to sit. We were elbow to elbow with everyone. And then after day two, they started separating people by aircraft. And on my... Uh, long-term day two, which was for the Embraer 145, we had 26 people. So it's still a reasonable mm. amount, but not overwhelming. And, and you said how many yeah. were yours? So we had 70-some. 70 70-some <sighs> people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I believe that was their, their, their biggest class to date. I, I, and, but before this, each class before that was, you know, 50, 60, 67, you know, uh, so they had hundreds of people there going through the training center, and I was a part of a 76 class or, or 76, 72. Uh, but then the following uh, or the following class, 70 guys, 60 guys, you know, so they were just completely overwhelmed with the number of new hires. And uh, it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. You know, yeah. and every every pilot who was qualified to fly was out on the line flying. And uh, the people teaching in doc um, were just old retired guys who had never worked at the airline or didn't have experience on the jet and were teaching ground systems just by reading a slide, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely challenging. It's like that now. It's it's how it is now, believe it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Over at Legacy, when you do ground school, you... When you're in systems, you're being taught by, an, uh, at least for the Airbus, uh, an Airbus ground instructor that knows the airplane phenomenally. I mean, these guys are top-notch, don't get me wrong, but they're not pilots. Most of them are either retired yep. or uh, just not, yeah. not a pilot, at least not in the 121 sense yeah. of the word. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, that's a very common thing. It, it goes to the same theory that we've been talking about now for, for many years about <laughs> when you contract out things and, you know, you need all hands on deck. That's unfortunately what has to happen is you get contracted yeah. out training and, and contracted out services. Um, yeah. 
So I mean, but to your to, point, that's that's because everybody's out on the line. It's all hands on deck. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, prior to this, you know, I I, I went to uh, flight safety, which is a professional pilot place, right? Teaching, uh, and you know, I, I worked at a one thirty five operator, and and I've I've been through professional training, and that was pretty good. You know, flight safety yeah. did a really good job. Of you know, and I went there multiple times uh, for the King Air 200, King Air 350. You know, uh, not only initial but also recurrent training. You know, uh, four or five times. You know, so uh, to come see the 121 side of it and to see how kind of wild it was um, was really eye opening for me. But um, yeah. the fur the longer I was there, you know, IOE the first few days were just or not IOE, uh, INDOC, uh, in the first few days were just nuts. But as we got into the further I got along in training, uh, the better the instructors became, you know, as soon as we got to the simulator portion, okay, now these guys know what they're doing, <laughs> you know, these guys know how to fly. And then of course, uh, when you're out on the line, now you're, uh, with guys like Tony who are IOE guys and Czech airmen who have the experience. So, it progressively got better, but those that first week, uh, there were some red flags. Yeah. So I think the lesson here is, you know, if uh, if you're thinking, hey, what what the heck's going on? What did I get myself into? Sometimes a little bit of patience pays off. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Participate, graduate, you know, and uh, just do what you're told, you know, and you'll get through it. Yeah. 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 You'll learn. I learned you have to be like a chameleon, man. You, you really have to just kind of, yep. you know. Go, go with your environment. I mean, there, there's a lot of um, adapt and overcome in the whole, you know, journey through this, through this career. But especially like right now with when you get into a 121 training environment, because uh, they are experiencing, you know, numbers that they've never had to deal with before. And, you know, they need as many people as they can get. So they're just trying to get you all on in the books and then into training as quickly and as most efficiently as possible. And and there's not, I mean, for, for as big as a, a company as legacy and Sandpiper are, you know, there's behind the scenes, there's, there's really not that many people, um, you know, doing all the, you know, the behind the scenes work. I mean, there are, there is a lot of people, but you know, from a numbers per se, you know, we got 15,000 pilots. You, you know, there's probably 20 people, maybe 30 at most that are doing everything behind the scenes for all these hundreds of people coming in the door. And yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot to go, a lot to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and you just have to be patient and not just yeah. for the employees, but for the passengers as well. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about patience on on the, <laughs> out of the airports right now in Good a segue. bit. So your 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 journey over at Sandpiper has can I say it's been relatively positive? It's been great. It's been really really great. Uh, it's been nothing but positive. You know, um, I have r- recommended friends to come here, and uh, their journeys have been a little bit different, uh, but it's. Uh, all about how you look at it and um, what time I guess you get hired. I had a friend who got hired uh, just a little bit after I did. I, you know, I recommended him to come on board and he just got stuck on reserve at not at home, you know, out in New York, uh, yeah. sitting standby, never flying. 
and it was just absolute chaos for him. You know, he, he, he hated it. And, uh, you know, for me, my experience has been nothing but positive. I've really enjoyed it and that's why I've stayed. And that's why I decided to stay here and to upgrade, you know? Yeah. Now you could have upgraded a while ago. I remember we, we were talking a couple of weeks ago and you were saying, yeah, I could have upgraded a while ago, but you know, with the kids and the family and, and I've decided to stay in the seat because the pay is not that bad and the time off is not that bad. Do you find that that is a better route for most people with families to just wait for the quality of life to be there? I'm glad you said that. Um, I'm glad you said better route for most people with families because uh, that's really what ultimately comes first, you know, is, is, is the wife and kids. And uh, when I came here to Sandpiper, uh, the previous job, I was gone all the time. I was gone. I was working all the time and uh, my home life wasn't that great. And so uh, coming here to Sandpiper, getting onto the uh, reserve list and being um, pretty high on the reserve list where I would hardly ever get called. I mean, I went, I honestly went three years with, uh, with out barely flying here on the reserve list. Uh, and, uh, I would work, um, pretty much I would just pick up time. I mean, pick up open time on my days off and just never get called on my on days. Cause we hired so many, so many pilots that the reserve list was huge. The, there was a point where I was, uh, there was a hundred people beneath me on the reserve list. So I would never get called, you know, <laughs> wow. at all. Wow. So, uh, the quality of life for me was absolutely fantastic. I was getting paid, you know, 75 hours worth of pay and I wasn't working at all. I would have to come in to get my landings in and I was doing all this from home. Uh, I live on a lake here at home. So being on the lake, fishing, swimming, snorkeling, having my phone with me, you know, in a waterproof case, <laughs> hanging out with my family, you know? So, so definitely by far for me or for guys with families waiting to upgrade is, I mean, it w really worked out for me. Yeah. I, I would rather just stay as a senior first officer now and just get the pack, you know, just get the captain pay. I, I really don't want to go to train. <laughs> 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 I'm getting uh, paid, you know, I'm getting I paid get, the captain pay. So yeah. that, that really helps, but I'd rather stay. I'd, I'd love to hold my, FO seniority, you know? Yeah. Now explain that. So when you bid for equipment over at Sandpiper and you're awarded equipment, when do you start getting paid your captain pay? As soon as the bid closes and as soon as you're awarded. So I was awarded wow. back in spring. And so I've spent, and I get to my line, you know, when I bid for my monthly schedule, I, I bid with my FO seniority, uh, but my pay is at the captain seniority. Wow. You know, so I'm getting paid four year captain pay, but flying as, as an, as an FO and, uh, bidding FO, uh, trips, you know, that's or, new. Yeah. I didn't have I'd that when I was up, there. I'd be picking up OT <laughs> as much as I can right now. So I, so last, so last month, uh, last month I had, uh, the opportunity I had vacation lined up and I dropped that. I covered the, I covered the drop trips with my sick time. I picked up, uh, 30 hours of 200% of captain pay, um, <laughs> over, over a month. So yeah. it was uh, quite the paycheck, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. definitely trying to take advantage of the system. Now, yeah. speaking of the system, I mean, this is one thing that when you come from a GA world or a charter world, and then you come onto an airline, 
learning the contract, how you get paid, and how to work the system, picking up trips, dropping trips, getting pay guarantee, not getting paid guarantee, you know, sick pay, how, how that works. That's one of the hardest parts. I mean, here you are new to a company and you're trying to learn an aircraft and systems and, and you know, the simulator call outs and flows and procedures and checklists. And at the same time, as soon as you pass that type ride and you're out on the flight line and you've completed IOE, now you're on your own and you've got to figure all this stuff out. Now, some people freak out about it and others have friends that, you know, went before them. Uh, for me, that was Rob. Hey, Rob, how do I pick up a trip? <laughs> he had been with the company, yeah. what, a year before I, I came <laughs> yeah. over. So I always seem to have a go-to person. That's why it's important to make friends uh, in your training class and to network because those some of those people it might be new for them as well, but maybe they have friends that have been at that company for some time. It can help you know, navigate all the complexities of contracts. But there's something that out here at Legacy Airlines over the past few weeks, we've been going, hey, did you hear about those guys at Sandpiper? No, what? Premium pay? 300%? 300. Now, super, yeah, super, I can't remember what they said. Super Super premium? What? Super critical, super, super critical. critical coverage. Please explain this to me <laughs> yeah. as if I didn't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Well, super critical. So, uh, you know, overtime OT, you know, overtime is usually paid at 150%. Um, and now they have, well, they have critical coverage where they pay 200%. And that's what I was able to pick up, uh, in the previous month, which was fantastic, you know? And now for the first time ever, um, at my four years here at Sandpiper, uh, we got a message, uh, saying super critical coverage paid at 300% of, uh, your normal salary. So that was, uh, in absolutely incredible. So if I were to pick up, it would be, uh, it would be about the, the same rate as a legacy captain who's been there for probably five, six years. You know, um, and I actually right now I'm on a stretch of five or six days and I had the I had the opportunity. That's where it was actually offered over the course of this weekend. And I didn't take it. I said, you know what? I would rather spend some time at home <laughs> you know, with my wife and kids and yep. just relax. That's probably um, the smartest you got right now. <laughs> Now that you got a little padding in the bank account from the other super critical yeah, trips. That's correct. Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, so you awesome. heard it you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, on the Squawk Ed in podcast. Yeah. If you're a regional airline pilot right now and you fly for what we call Sandpiper here on the show to obviously to protect us because we don't represent our companies in any way, as the disclaimer says at the beginning of the podcast, you could be making more than mainline captains <laughs> picking up yep. super critical coverage <laughs> on your days off. That's awesome. Oh, now, now <laughs> there's, there are pros and cons to this theory. Mm. And, and I can remember as far back as when I was over at the, uh, the, the sandpiper myself, the union stance is, or at least it was at the time. Don't pick up open time at all. Don't pick up critical coverage. You know, no matter what cherry they dangle in front of you, don't do it. Force the airline to staff appropriately. There are many pilots out on the street that want a job. And if you don't pick up 
open time and you just fly your contractual schedule, the company will then be forced to hire more pilots and therefore make the quality of life and the contract compliance a lot more regular. Mm. Then, as they couldn't find anybody to hire because they've got harder and harder with this pilot shortage that we keep hearing about, then they said, well, okay, you can pick up, but you know <laughs> yeah pick up and this you know buy the contract and stuff now it's like all hands on deck 300 percent. and the union's like go for it yeah we we got you that 300 percent. good god you know <laughs> yeah. good job um so times have changed uh with with the philosophies of picking up critical coverage um over here at Legacy, we've been going, how come we don't have 300%? Right. <laughs> I guarantee you there wouldn't be any trips in open time and those reserve oh. pilots would just be sitting at home going, oh, there's nothing open, so I guess I'll just sit here and get paid. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it just depends on, on you know, how you're looking at it and from which side of the, of the management fence. Yep. And the guys that make the most money are the guys that know how to uh, know the guys who know the contract and they know all the little, you know, loop. I wouldn't call them loopholes, but just uh, exceptions to the contract where they can um, create their own schedule to capitalize on these situations. Yep. And I, it's I, all I, about I, I the like technique to think I was, bidding. Yeah, I, I like to think I was getting savvy at that after my 12 years <laughs> at Legacy. And in the last like two months, I did do really well and it was a very similar situation where they're offering critical coverage and um and then as you know tony they were offering that that override as a check airman so man i was i was able to you know do some creative scheduling and then get some students and make some you know pretty good money there at the end yeah yeah so, know your contract yeah. that's the, yeah. that's the lesson here know the contract know what Definitely. you can and can't do know what yeah. they can and can't do because if you don't yeah. know exactly. they will bend it to their will you know when it's yeah, convenient like, like for them you, yeah like you alluded to in the beginning of the of the segment there you, you kind of develop you kind of learn it as you go i mean you, you want to know as much about it right out of training as you can but, you know, like, let's face it, for the six weeks that you're starting off at the airline there, you are just trying to figure out how to fly this airplane and memorize all the memory items yep. and things like that. So the contract is the furthest thing from your, you know, from your, you know, furthest thing from your mind right. at that point in time. And then, like you said, as soon as you you get that check right over with, all of a sudden, boom, now you're being held to the contract. Um and you're you're just trying to figure out, yeah. you know, what you can, what you can't do, and how to do things. How do you sign in? How do you just how do you just sign in for a trip? You know, <laughs> it's crazy. But um, yeah, yeah, you, you kind of learn it along the way, and and we've all been there. We've all violated the contract, not intentionally, but come to find out later, oh, you know, that wasn't the way they our union want us wants us to do things you know yeah but it sounded good at the time sounded like the most sensible thing but more often than not the sensible thing is not what the contractual thing is <laughs> yeah so, and, and, and even with, with faa regulations for a yeah. while there was a campaign that alpa put together and you could be driving around the airports around the country and you would see a billboard with a, a yeah. real senior gray-haired captain in it, and it was a big ALPA, which is Airline Pilots Association, um, billboard. It's saying, just because it's legal, 
doesn't mean it's safe. It's safe. And there's, it's a lot of truth to that. And that that was at a time of growth that was, you know, about 10 years working on the old railway labor act laws of the 1940s or 1950s or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, there's a lot of changes that need to be made and thank God they made them. But even now it's still some of these schedules that we're flying are brutal. I mean, I haven't done anything but a 10 hour layover and, I know now. it's it's crazy. In ten hours, you would yeah. used to be like, "Hey, that's plenty of time to do stuff." But man, you you get there and you're just so tired from you know just all the nonsense going on around you that when you get there, you're you need all ten hours just to wind down, get some sleep, and and then you know get yourself going the next day. And and sometimes that's not even enough. I mean, you you're just you know pushing the limits there. You know so. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy. Like I said, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. If you know that you're not safe to operate on all your cylinders, that's what the fatigue call is for. And so you got to fill out a report, but you know, that's what it's there for. That's why we cannot be penalized by calling in fatigued through protection from the FAA. So Pete, you're getting ready to go through the qualified upgrade course. And I believe Rob, you went through the qualified upgrade as well, right? Uh, yes, yeah. I did. And so did I. Yep. So Pete, you're yep. in, you're in good hands if you have any questions. I mean, granted it was a long time ago, but, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm sure. Yeah, and in mine, mine was in the 121 check ride world. So it was completely different from the AQP stuff, but it, it's for, you right. still do the same things, right? You still do the yeah. one cuts and single engine landing, go arounds, and it's all the same. You do the same Some thing, kind of evacuation. You're in the left seat instead of the right <laughs> yeah. seat. That's it. Do they have to stay, still put you through a, a captain DNR class, duties and responsibility? That's what I remember they used to call it, DNR. Yeah, DNR. yeah. I guess they say that's the most boring part of the, yeah. the whole process, you know. Yeah, it but, sure is. Yeah, and that's um, not an FAA-required no. class. That's a company-imposed no. class. Uh, yeah. Basically, okay, you're now in charge. You're you're putting your signature in the logbook. So, what can you expect yeah. in terms of responsibilities as the PIC? Yeah, yeah. Legacy has the same same kind of class over here too. Yeah, they they dress it up a little bit with a dinner, I think, and <laughs> they feed All you before that, yeah, they kick you. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, so are you getting ready for this qualified upgrade class? Is it uh, a lot of pressure for you or do you think piece of cake? Well, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys and they said it's, it's really fun. It's really enjoyable. Um, I do like going back to training. Um, I always learn something. I like to prepare for it. And uh, that's where I'm at now is the beginning of the preparation phase. So I go at the end of the month here. It's what the seventh. So really now is uh, I just started the other day with my, my ground training. Uh, CBTs, you know, computer-based training. Um, and I've got a couple friends going through uh, the qualified upgrade as well. So now it's just getting a hold of them and seeing what their thought process is and what they're doing to prepare. And um, I mean, I've gone through, uh, what is it, um, recurrent training multiple times here. I've, you know, we've all taken multiple check rides. We've, we've done this, you know, so we should know how to do it. So I'm not too nervous about it, um, but I am at the same time because I know how much work it takes. Uh, but all I, I mean, I know is if I put the work in, it'll go just fine. And um, what I keep hearing is 
qualified upgrade is, is, is a breeze. You're going to go there, have a good time. You already know the airplane. Um, exactly. you know, the flow, I mean, you know, and you know, everything it's just now you're doing it from a left seat, you know? So it's just yeah. recurrent from a left seat. And, um, I'm, and I'm a sponge. I'm going to go in with an open mind and, uh, I'm, I'm there to learn, you know, so I'm going to just do my job and, uh, hopefully, uh, it all turns out well, but, uh, as I stated, I'm in the beginning process of starting to uh, prepare for everything. And I've got plenty of time. I've got uh, some trips uh, that I'll be on that I have uh, time to study on for the overnights or on the overnights. And um, I do a lot of, uh, I have a, a lot of things recorded on my iPhone of me studying previously for, uh, for recurrent. Mm-hmm. And so I drive an hour and about an hour and 40 minutes to work. And, uh, I just listen to limitations. Uh, I listen to the systems questions, you know, um, and I just listen to this over and over and over and over again, awesome. uh, for the course of a month. And, uh, then I could just blurt it out when it time comes, you know? <laughs> so your um, your so, sounds to me like your principles of learning is auditory. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. If I, if I, I mean, well, think about it. If you hear it, you should be able to say it, right? If you hear it enough, you know, if that's all you're listening to, <laughs> yeah. you know, then, then it just overtakes your mind, you know? So, uh, so yeah, definitely. Yourself. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. And so I have, I, I guess I figured that out, uh, back during my first type rating in the King Air 350, you know, I, recorded and i still have all that stuff now so if i ever were to go fly that again i could re learn or i could just listen to that you know and uh so i've got everything saved on my phone uh for recurrent or the 145 and i just listen to that and i just go over the new uh if they if they updated anything in the manuals you know um and uh should be good yeah so I'm not overly worried about it kind of excited i think i'm ready to uh kind of set the tone in the cockpit and sit in the left seat and uh and have a good time and um yeah really looking forward to it good well we wish you uh, luck and please keep us updated on your progress as well thanks i'll need it (laughs) now i I wanted to ask you a little bit about the challenges uh that you went through throughout your entire journey in aviation i know at the beginning everybody has the hurdles that they have to get over and get through what were some of your biggest challenges? Some of my biggest challenges. Uh, well, I think I touched on it just a little bit before, but I used to have a really bad stutter problem. You know, I was one of those kids in school uh, when we were reading chapters out loud, I would count the number of paragraphs and find my paragraph that I had to read. And I would reread and reread and reread. And then when it finally came to my my turn to read, I would, and I couldn't get it out. I would stutter really bad. So for me, communication was, uh, was a really big challenge talking on the radio to air traffic control. Um, and, uh, just spitting out my call sign, uh, who I'm talking to, you know, that was a really big challenge for me. Uh, but I overcame it. Uh, it was, uh, it was just practice, you know, practice makes perfect. And also having that, that job at true green, uh, having to go door to door, meet new people and to learn how to communicate effectively, uh, definitely helped. So yeah. that was, I, I guess communication was a big one and everyone's going to say, you know, uh, I think I would agree. Uh, everybody would agree here, you know, finance, you know, having, having the money to be able to finance this profession, you know, this hobby, whatever you yeah. want to call it, 
uh, and I was fortunate enough to have a, have a wife who had a great, uh, you know, career as a nurse and was able to support me, um, for a long time, you know, to be able to get through this. Yes. And was there ever a point in your training or your general aviation time that you had an in-flight emergency that really shook you a little bit? Uh, definitely. Yeah, I have one. Uh, I've, I've had a few, I should say. Um, we'll start off just with the first one here. And uh, it was at um, Capitol Drive Airport in a Cherokee 140. I was a private pilot. I had uh, 75 hours at the time. And this was in that time frame. I had the private pilot. I was building that time for the instrument. And um, so I was going to do a solo cross-country flight uh, at night from Capitol Drive to Madison and back. And my, and I remember before I took this flight, the whole purpose of my flight was to have clear and effective communication, uh, perfect navigation. I was using VORs. Um, I was going into a class Charlie airport, you know, uh, so just dealing with ATC, everything was supposed to go perfectly. <laughs> that, that, that was the plan for this flight, you know, it was solo at night, uh, it was a summer night. And, um, so I'm in the airplane, I get to the end of the runway, it's at night, uh, untowered airport. Um, I do my run-ups and everything goes well, you know, run-up only takes, uh, 30 seconds or so in, uh, in a little Cherokee. Um, and I advance throttle and I go down the runway, you know, uh, I believe it's 60 knots. You rotate. I, I pulled back. I climbed maybe 50 feet and the engine cut out and, uh, my heart sank <laughs> you know, or my stomach sank, whatever. I, I was scared, you know, what, well, what do you do? You know, I did what I was trained. I reduced throttle. I pitched down, um, I'm probably 75 feet above the runway. Now, three quarters of the way down the runway, you just took off, right? Uh, pitch down landing lights illuminated the trees at the end of the runway, you know, and you, you, you've always heard if you don't like what you see when that landing light illuminates, shut it off. Right. Uh, but I, I, I didn't <laughs> shut it off. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I reduced throttle. I pitched down and I, I was going to crash, you know, I was going to crash into the trees at the end of the runway. Uh, I didn't have the room to land. If I, if I were just to push it down, I'd gain airspeed. You know, I wouldn't be able to stop. I, if anything, if I would porpoise and I, I was going to crash. And, um, so, uh, instinctively I, uh, added throttle because it was still windmilling. Uh, the prop was still moving. Uh, I added throttle, you know, I pitched down, I saw the end of the runway, uh, saw the trees. I added throttle. It came back to life. Um, as soon as it came back to life, I pitched up, cleared the trees, and I did a flow. I did an emergency flow, you know, mixture rich, uh, fuel pumps on, uh, switch gas tanks. Um, there's not much else you can do in a very simple single like that. You know, that's about it. Uh, Carpet, I think, was one of them. Um, but I did this flow, and I cleared the trees, and uh, 30 seconds later, it died again. Um, and uh, so now I cleared the trees. There's a road to my left capital drive uh as a two-lane uh kind of like a small highway and i said okay i'm gonna put it down on the highway uh so i pulled the throttle i already did my flow nothing else changed and i was getting set up to to land on the highway just i, I was making a left turn 
Um, so I, I pulled throttle, I was getting set up and I didn't even think about it, but, uh, it worked before. So I added throttle again after, I don't know, maybe five seconds or so, uh, it came back to life. So, uh, I climbed up, I said, okay, great. I got, you know, maybe 10, 15 seconds of full throttle. Uh, I'm going to turn around and land the, the way that I just took off. I started making my turn and uh, nice and shallow because I was low, right? And I know uh, you're supposed to land straight ahead, but I had power. I was climbing. It was, you know, I was in a climbing turn back towards the runway. Um, and I turn and it's just a black hole. Uh, the lights shut off oh. <laughs> at the airport. Oh. So, so now I have to bring up the lights and, you know, five seconds later, the engine dies again. You know, and so now I bring up the lights as I'm in the, you know, best glide. Uh, now I'm, after I bring up the lights, I realize I'm already halfway. I'm right in the middle of the airport, maybe 150 feet high. There's no way I can make a landing from here, but you know what? This is working for me. I can, I can climb, um, for maybe 10 seconds. And then it, then I pull the throttle for five seconds and it died, you know? And, and so I did this, I, I did this, you know, I went up and down, up and down. I finally made it to a left downwind and just pulled the throttle, did a, you know, executed a power off 180 and landed. So it died on me a few more times throughout this experience and or throughout this time. Uh, and I landed and I brought it back. Um, and the thing would still idle on the ground. It would idle and it would have, you know, if I added gas, it would, it would go for a little bit. So I'm pretty shook up. I make it back to the ramp. I park the airplane. I pull the mixture. The airplane shuts off. Master's still on. And I hear splashing on the ground. There's a little window on your left with a, uh, with a Cherokee. And I hear splashing on the ground. I, and I immediately knew what it was. Um, I hopped out of the airplane. The, the last place the fuel goes in a Cherokee 140 is uh, at the bottom of the engine. You know, there's a strainer down there where you strain on your pre-flight. Uh, this particular design it had a T, and if you pushed in and turned, it would lock lock open, oh. and that's how you drain some fuel to check if there's any check if there's any uh, you know contaminants. And so um, things started to make sense to me as I was putting this all together. Uh, we'll go all the way back to my pre-flight um, inspection for that night. I'm walking on the pre-flight. It's night. I have a, a headlamp on. I'm trying to do everything perfectly, right? Um, but I missed a couple steps. One of the first steps was to make sure that the fuel was in left or right, um, not in the off position. It's either left, right, or off. It was in the off position. I, I didn't verify it was in the off position. It should have been in left or right. So during my pre-flight, when I walked around, uh, the fuel selector was in the off position. So when I went to drain fuel from the lowest point or the last place the fuel goes before the engine, it got stuck in the on position. I only got a few driblets. I said, okay, it looks good. And I continued. After, when trying to start the airplane, I realized it wouldn't start. You know, I'm cranking, cranking, cranking. I was like, well, what's going on? I look, oh, sure enough, fuel. And so that was a checklist error. So there's a lot of things I learned here during this, 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 uh, this time or this flight. Um, and so I learned, okay, so I put it into left, let's say, and the airplane started up no problem taxi down the runway. But what was happening, I had the electric or the electric fuel pump on or at idle. I had enough fuel at idle cause it was still draining this whole time. I'm spitting fuel out of the bottom of the engine. Mm -hmm. 
um, when I started up the airplane, uh, I brought up the lights cause I couldn't see, I brought up the lights as soon as I started the airplane at the airport. Um, I never turned them off or return them back back on before takeoff, you know? So that's why they shut off because it's, I think it's a 10, 15 minute timer, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I learned a lot. Yeah. And so anyways, what was happening was I was just, uh, waste, you know, the gas was just leaking from the bottom of the engine there out of that, out of that fuel drain. And, uh, the carb would burn the fuel that was in it. And then it would die. When I would pull the throttle to idle, the carburetor would refill back up with the engine driven fuel pump and the electric fuel pump. It would fill back up and then I would burn it off when I added full, full power. Yeah. So, um, that was at 75 hours and that's, that shook me up a little bit, uh, for a few days. Uh, I was kind of scared, you know, but, uh, then I came back, I think that weekend I said, okay, I got, I got to get over this. And, uh, uh, I went flying again. It was no problem, but that was my first real emergency, uh, in GA. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's a, uh, so yeah, a few things that I learned. Fantastic. Uh, I'm just gonna, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's a few awesome. things that I learned there were, uh, you know, just to, I guess, checklist usage, proper checklist usage, you know, and the whole purpose of this flight was well, everything was supposed to go perfectly, you know, and I, here I, I, I think I was doing things right, but probably just rushing through this checklist. There's a checklist for a reason. Uh, do verify or trust and verify, right? Make when you read something or when you're doing a flow, you know, I've, I've caught myself, um, I've got comfortable in the jet that I'm flying in now. So I'll do something. I'll realize I'll say it, but I actually didn't look at it. And I'm like, oh, you know what? I got to make sure this is here, that that's there, you know? So, so just proper checklist usage, uh, was, was one big thing that I learned that night. Um, resetting the lights, uh, before you take, before you take off, you know, um, in case you need to return so they don't shut off on you. And, uh, I guess I had really good training because, uh, you know, it was just instinctively what I did, you know, I, you know, instead of trying to, you know, pull up with the, you know, and just stalling out, you know, just, you know, you know, uh, pushing down and, and doing that flow, you know, fuel pumps, mixture, whatever that, you know, fuel selector, you know, um, training kicked in and, and I was able to land and bring the airplane back in one piece. Yeah. That's an amazing, amazing story. Um, and you know, I think a lot of it to do with your mechanical ability and understanding the system uh, had a lot to do with it. You figured it out. You used critical thinking and your knowledge to figure out, well, if this works, let's keep going. I mean, the fact that <laughs> you were able to make it work and come back now, the, the, the fuel, as you explained it, was draining. And therefore, when the demand uh, exceeded its ability, it, it, it would go to idle. Um, it would run, it would have fuel starvation. Um, and that checklist, checklist usage and ensuring that you're not going too fast when you're reading a, a checklist and you said, trust, but verify. We see this every single day. How many times have you walked up to an airplane, the crew's gone, but the beacon light is still on and you're mm-hmm. thinking, oh, why is the beacon light on? Uh, that's why 99.9% <laughs> of the time. It's because you've gone through your parking checklist or secure checklist, whatever your airline calls it, and you read it and the captain, as a, as a first officer, you're reading it and the captain says the response. And yep. usually you're reading it while you're doing other things and packing up your bag and your EFB and your headset and stuff. It's like, slow down, take yeah. the checklist out, 
Read it. Don't don't read it like your micro machines guy from that commercial from the eighties. You know, it's like park your brake. <laughs> On. You make your eyes as the person reading the checklist. Make your eyes go to in in the case of the Airbus, the triple indicator. Oh, is there pressure? Okay. And the next thing, beacon off. Have your eyes go up. Take a look. Your captain <laughs> might look at you like, what, what are you, stupid or something? What's, what's taking so long? But <laughs> there's a reason. Now, obviously, it doesn't go that slow. It kind of goes faster. But don't just arbitrarily read it. And I find myself very guilty of this. We all do, especially yeah. late at night after the third leg of the day or fourth leg of the day. And you're tired and it's dark. And you just want to, you're done. You're, the, the airplane is connected to the jet bridge. The engines are shut down. And all you got to do is read a checklist. And you know it by heart. Although you're not supposed to do it by heart. So, you know, park and brake, you know, all this stuff. And you're going through it. Slow down. Verify. Yeah. It's, it it yeah. may seem like something insignificant when you're reading a parking checklist. The brake is set. The right. engines are shut off. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You leave a beacon light on? Big deal. But it's through that process of I do this consistently with everything and every time I read a checklist and I'm never going to go faster than what is reasonable, then when <laughs> you're really time crunched and you've got an engine failure at 450 feet off the deck at night and you don't like what you see, <laughs> you're still going to go back and go, oh, memory item. It's a checklist that you've memorized. You know, what is it? step by step and in your situation it probably saved your life yeah yeah if it would have uh you know if it would have been an accident it would have been down to pilot error you know that's how they would have classified it because they would have found that valve or you know that little thing open there and uh it would have been you know pilot error it wasn't the airplane's fault it was the pilot's fault you know that was my yeah. pre-flight you know so just going too quickly being too excited, you know, maybe being in a time crunch, you know, um, you know, led to that scenario and slowing down and verifying everything's done appropriately would have prevented it. Absolutely. And you'll probably never make that mistake again. <laughs> You're a hundred percent correct. <laughs> you know, trust me. I've been, I, and I told everybody about this, you know, who's yeah, exactly. We all do. Yeah, we yep, all make exactly. those mistakes and we share it with everybody we know that's an aviator because, you know, they will probably learn from your mistakes. You know, what do they say? A, a good pilot learns from his mistakes and a great pilot learns from other people's mistakes. Well, <laughs> that's how we all become good and great yeah. pilots. Yeah, don't keep it a yeah. secret. If, if you learn yeah. something, you did something, you know, you everybody, we're human. We all do bonehead things. We all make errors. But hey, hey, I made this error. Uh, you tell your, tell your, your coworkers and your and your friends about it, yeah. like they'll learn not to make that error. They go, "Oh crap! Listen, what happened to yeah. Tony? You know, did you hear what happened to Tony?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think I, for me, I, you know, if I make an error like that, or you know, any kind of an error, you know, and sharing it with somebody else is is almost a way of me like not creating a bad habit. You know what I mean? Because if it happened, it's probably some kind of bad habit that I have developed you know, somewhere along the way. And, you know, if I talk it out and say, hey, I'm never going to do that again, you know, and then you're, you know, you share that with your buddy. And then, you know, if, you know, if you, if you happen to <laughs> come close to doing it again, they're like, hey, I thought you said you were going to do that again. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. Thank God we should, <laughs> we talked about it, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's for me. That's how it works. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> 
what have you had at at, at um, Sandpiper? Anything that happened at Sandpiper that? Uh, yeah, we had a uh, rapid decompression actually. Really? Uh, at uh, Flyable Two Eight Zero. Yeah, coming into Miami. No um, kidding. Yeah, it was. Kind uh, you know, I mean, I've realized that things, you know, when something goes wrong, things don't have to happen quickly. You don't have to do. You know, there's not a whole lot in an airplane or in a in a jet that you have to do quickly besides right. putting your mask on in a rapid decompression, you know, exactly. or explosive or in, in an explosive decompression, right. you know? And, uh, but anyways, yeah. So yeah, I had a, uh, rapid decompression coming into, uh, Miami. We were doing a longer flight. I think it was, uh, somewhere in Ohio back to Miami. Um, you know, our, one of our longer flights and, uh, it was a great time. We were having a great time. Um, the captain and I were, uh, we're, you know, getting along very well and everything was set up. And so, yeah, we were flying from Cleveland, I believe back to Miami. Uh, we just started the arrival into around Norman beach and at two eight Oh, uh, the captain realized, the uh, highly arrival. <laughs> yeah. Something, something like that. Yeah. One of those, uh, highly, highly seven, what, six, whatever it is now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, captain, you know, he's, uh, he's, he started freaking out and he's well, not freaking out, but he started, uh, you know, pointing towards the ICAS and, uh, we see that the, uh, cabin pressure is rising and, um, he's, he's, he immediately jumps into action, you know, um, and it's r- rising rapidly and we're losing, you know, pressurization. And, uh, he, the first thing he said, he goes, uh, he goes, I've seen this in, in, in training. I've seen this in training, you know, he goes, <laughs> grabs his mask, you know, puts it on. And, and, and there we go. We started our, uh, you know, memory items, you know, oxygen mask on crew. On uh, yeah. On hundred percent communication established, you know, rapid descent as required, you know? And, uh, so anyways, yeah, we, we, uh, we initiated a, uh, a uh rapid descent and uh or emergency descent as required that's what it's called emergency descent and uh declared an emergency it wasn't explosive it was just rapid um and he was pretty excited and that which got me excited um you know i mean the first thing we do is we we adjust our seats we're you know we're sitting forward you know because we're you know we're sitting back relaxed you're, cruising and you know you, cruise you mode. Adjust, yeah yeah you're in cruise mode so uh so we adjust our seats we're on our way down and i remember you know he's breathing really hard you know and it was we established crew communication we could hear each other and i could hear him just breathing you know really heavy and 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 i remember looking over at him in our you know, we're in our descent, you know, we're bouncing along, you know, getting down, you know, speed brakes are out and, uh, gears down and all that. And, uh, we're bouncing along. He's breathing really heavy. He's, you know, he's hand flying it, you know? And I just, I just looked over at him, just kind of tapped his shoulder. I said, Hey, I go, you all right, man. And he looks over at me. He's like, yeah, I go, all right. And we fist pounded and then we continued. (laughs) 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 And, uh, yeah, I just had to slow him down to slow myself down, you know, but, yeah. uh, we, we, yeah, we descended, uh, got to, uh, you know, we were shooting for 10, we blew through 10 I said, okay, we're going to level at eight. Um, and we leveled at eight. Uh, oh, and he was telling me to drop the mask. So in the Embraer 140, 145, uh, you know, the masks will deploy, I think at 14 or 15,000 feet, yeah. 14. Yeah. Uh, 
and the cabin rate never got that high, but he was saying masks, 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 you know, through our oxygen masks. And, uh, I was like, what would you like me to do? And he says, drop the masks, you know, and I'm, I thought about it for a second. And, uh, I realized that, you know, I don't know if we're going to have an explosive decompression or if it's going to go any, or if it's going to continue to climb. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Continue to climb. I don't know what's going to happen. He's asking for it. Uh, it will deploy automatically, but I said, okay. I mean, this is all happened in a matter of two seconds. Sure. Thought about yeah. it. He asked yeah. for it. Thought about it. And then boom, just dropped the mask, you know? So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that was that. We landed and uh, that was it. <laughs> you know, we, we thanked Woo. everybody, you know, on board. Yeah, yeah, we got down. Everything was good. Declared emergency and landed. And then uh, yeah. they discovered it was uh, leaking somewhere around the, um, PCA, uh, uh, yeah. wherever they hook up, you know, preconditioned yeah. air. Yeah. So, well, you, you brought something to light that we, uh, we talk about in training all the time when you were in the middle of the emergency and you were in your emergency descent and, you know, you said you brought your seat up and you're bouncing along and you can hear your, your captain over there just breathing, breathing, breathing. And, you know, you tapped them on the shoulder and you looked at him and you were like, are you okay? And he looked at you and he went, yeah. And then you fist bump. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, that's something that is, is awesome. You know, we talk about that all the time. You know, you get, sometimes you get so caught up in the moment and, you know, you, um, you get like, uh, you know, what do they call it? Tunnel focus, tunnel is that what's called? Tunnel vision. Tunnel, yeah, vision, tunnel vision, right? And you're just focused on doing, you know, doing the right thing perfectly and you forget about everything else. And it happens to everybody. Right. And you just tapping them on the shoulder kind of brings them back to, hey, we're good. You know, the, your scan is out here now where everybody's in the, in the green, we call it. And, uh, you know, we're outside of the yellow. And I, it didn't sound like you guys ever got in the red, which is awesome. No which is a term that we use uh, in training red being you're you're completely clueless to what's going on yellow oh. being like you're you're kind of you're kind of you know tunnel vision or you're kind of uh you know a little outside of your <laughs> comfort zone and then green meaning hey you're with it you're dialed in we're doing everything properly you know that's a great way to bring somebody back into the green yeah that was cool man that was a great that's story a, that's a wonderful story <laughs> um and yeah you know, we, we train for these things, these events yeah. in theory. And, yeah. you know, you, you're in a simulator that's what, $10 million CAE simulator that's, you know, <laughs> just like being in the real airplane. And, yeah. and the fact that your captain's like, I remember this from training. It's just like, it's from training. It's the same thing. <laughs> and it kind of brings like, you yeah, into He goes, I've seen this before. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, great job fantastic and, yeah, and for that's you to awesome. have the wherewithal to to kind of bring him back into the yeah. green uh by by just taking a moment and because you got time i mean yeah, that, yeah I, you know you yeah. got time so you brought him back and and that also helped you out a lot as it brought you yeah. back definitely yeah because uh i usually don't get too excited when things happen you know um there's there's a reaction for every action right that happens up there and we should be prepared for those uh and what i wasn't prepared for was my uh you know captain being 
a lot more nervous than I would expect, you know? And yeah. so that, that made me nervous because yeah. uh, here I am, he's supposed to have, you know, he's the almighty, you know? <laughs> and and yeah, we're, uh, we're human and to see him <laughs> being a little more excited than yeah. I was expecting, you know, got me excited. And so that's yeah. where I needed yeah. to just level that's us a, both off. You know, <laughs> That's a human factor. I, I mean, yeah. you know, the training is being able to handle that part of it you know, the human factor part of it and bring your, not only him down to back to a, a reasonable level of, of focus, but yourself too. You know what I mean? Cause like you said, you got amped up at him, you know, that's human factors. I mean, you, you, you feel probably, I wouldn't say you felt compassionate for him, but when he was excited, you were like, Holy shit, if he's excited, <laughs> am I supposed yeah. to be excited too? <laughs> yeah. What is he, exactly. what is he seeing that I'm not getting? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, yeah, wonderful. A plus, man. Wonderful nice story. Job. Yes. Now you've talked about some successful, um, reactions to some in-flight emergencies and let's let's dial it out of the emergency topic and let's just talk about sometimes you're out on the flight line and you're dealing with a conflicting personality on the flight deck how have you handled that in the past i mean because you seem like a pretty level-headed person in general have you ever had difficulty with that uh, I feel like I could get along with just about anybody is, you know, um, and I think I can and, uh, 99, let's say maybe 98% of the guys out there are the same, you know, uh, but every now and then that, you know, you run into a guy where you, you know, you butt ahead with, and, um, I haven't had too many experiences here at, uh, Sandpiper. Maybe I could just think of two, one that happened when I was new and one that, happened maybe about a month or two ago you know and um how to deal with them um well the first one um you know i it was we were landing i was landing at an unfamiliar airport and um i don't know if this was more of conflicting personality um i guess it kind of was because I was still new and I was still in the mindset of being a captain. I was a captain at my last job prior to this, I was an instructor. So, you know, I was the guy everybody was, was, uh, was looking for answers to, you know, and, uh, I was doing the training. So for me to sit in the right seat was a change of roles. And I guess, uh, I took that. I could have, um, I kind of stepped on this captain's toes because I, uh, wasn't necessarily running the show i remember on this flight but uh maybe instead of him asking for number two to be started i would prompt it hey let's start number two you know or uh maybe you know my big thing is i like to give progressive tax instructions to everybody because i don't know where i'm going so i just talk myself through it (laughs) and i think he 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 looked at that as uh maybe he thought that i didn't think he knew where he was going so i was you know uh I felt that he thought I was stepping on his toes and I probably was, I probably should have let him run the show instead of prompting. Okay, let's start to, okay, we're making a right turn here, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, he, he is a senior captain and he was this young guy, you know, he doesn't know my experience, my background, you know, uh, and, uh, he's probably dealt with a lot of these new, newer guys, you know? So anyways, um, uh, yeah, we were just landing and on a, 
it was an upsloping runway. I couldn't see the end of the runway. So I, uh, I said, okay, I'm coming on the brakes with you. And, uh, because I knew the exit was on the end, but I didn't know where the end of the runway was because upsloping, I couldn't see it. And he was still going quite fast. And I, and I know he wanted to make that exit to get to the FBO quickly. Uh, but I just couldn't see it. So I just said, I'm going to, I'm hopping on the brakes with you, you know? And, uh, he immediately, you know, as we're in the process of landing, you know, comes back and says, Oh yeah, he goes, you've been doing this crap all week, you know? And I'm like, Oh boy. <laughs> you know, And, uh, and so I came back, you know, immediately and said, I said, Oh yeah, well, I can't remember what I said. I, I fired something, you know, off right away. And here we are landing a jet with people in the back, you know, uh, and we're arguing, you know, then I realized that I said this, you know, I was like, Holy cow, I just got to stop. You know, I got, I got, we got to, we got to land this jet. So we landed, we stopped, no problem, but, uh, we had a conflict, you know, and it was quiet till we got to the gate, you know, and he was heated. I was heated. Uh, and we deplaned and I just had to leave the cockpit, you know, I had to leave the cockpit and had to take a break, use the restroom, get a drink of water and, uh, prepare you know how am i going to deal with this situation now you know this guy's mad at um i don't know what i did wrong i feel like i was i stepped on his toes i had to get on the brakes i you know so i didn't take control of the aircraft but i just wanted to slow down a little bit quicker so uh, i thought about it and i went back and i talked i said you know captain um if there's anything that i did that was uh wrong um i apologize but i feel that we were going a little too fast. I couldn't see the end of the runway and I felt that we could slow down some more. So I stepped on the brakes, you know, and, um, he said, no, 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 it's good. It's good. It's fine. I go, no, no, it's not fine <laughs> because I want to be able to express this and tell you what, you know, I want to talk through this because we were at an out station. We still had to do another turn. We had the rest of the trip to, you know, to fly together. And I, I didn't want it to be an issue, you know? And I said, if I did something wrong, please tell me, you know, if, if there's something, there's a different way I could have handled this. You know, how, how could I have handled it, you know, differently? And, uh, you know, his, his kind of response was, uh, well, he actually apologized too for kind of jumping down my throat at that point. He said, you're right. That's fine. I understand. Uh, he said he could have, he should have said that. And I told, you know, we just kind of apologized to each other and just worked through it. And the rest of the trip was fine. You know, we had no issues. We got along just fine. No problem. But, uh, but I kind of realized too, you know, after him saying you've been doing this crap all week, you know, well, yeah, maybe I should ask, have him tell me when to start number two. I shouldn't prompt him to start the APU or I should let him be the captain. And that was me trying to fit my role as a first officer coming from being a captain at my last job. So just learning when to be a chameleon, you know, when to uh, be the first officer, sit and let the captain run the show. And so, uh, and then how I dealt with that was, you know, just going to him, you know, directly and, and letting him know. I mean, I felt comfortable enough to do that and, and to talk with him. And it was a positive outcome. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of stories that we love to hear because we all have that point of humility as an aviator, whether that's with an instructor and a student pilot, with a first officer and a captain, and even with a captain and a first officer. I mean, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard, how many times I've been a participant in a scenario very much like the one you are. Um, even recently, I was, 
I don't remember the exacts of it, but very recently I was running through some kind of checklist or briefing or I was like, all right, I'm ready for to brief you on the descent if you're ready. And the captain's like, well, you know, I'm not as quick as you are, so you're going to have to slow down. Give me a minute. And I thought, oh, wow. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, sure, sure. Take, yeah, yeah, my, my, I'm sorry. Take your time. Yeah. And so I immediately recognized that maybe with this particular pilot that I am flying with, this captain who is, who outranks me here, I need to kind of slow down and interject the, okay, are you ready for a decent, um, when you're ready, let me know. And for some <laughs> people, you have to have that little extra patient and tone that will keep a positive atmosphere going. And yeah. so I, I, I'm a lot like you, Pete. I, I, I get it. I, I've, I've been there. I've kind of been like, what's this guy doing? <laughs> and it's, a, it's kind of hard. And you are a chameleon. We've been talking about this for years. Yeah. But, you know, you have to kind of feed off of who you're flying with. And sometimes you're both like on point and it's just like, bup, 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 bup. And it's like the most yeah. awesome trip because you're both. Yeah you know, on point and up to each other's speed and you mesh well. And those are the trips that are the most memorable because like, yeah, we flew this airplane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and those listening, listening to the podcast, you know, we, we've got a big pilot group and the, the incredible part of all this is that, you know, we all go through training and uh, we all are taught to operate the aircraft the same way. So you can take any of the 15,000 people, um, in our pilot group, put them to together. And for the most part, it's going to be operated exactly the same way every time. I mean, obviously there's going to be some variances, but as far as operationally, we're going to do it the same way. And very rarely do you come across, you know, a situation like Pete had or something or Tony you had, I mean, it happens, but it's very rare. You know what I mean? It, it, it but it happens, you know, it, it does. And usually it's, it's a minor thing, you know, like, like in your case, Tony, you know, it's minor. Hey, I wasn't quite ready for it. You know, I'm a little slow. I can't even, I don't even know how to turn on my iPad. Hold on. Let me figure this out before we get to that part of it. You know? I had a captain. I was like, we were talking about like, he's like, Oh, you do a podcast. I'm like, yeah, I'll, uh, uh, pull out your phone. I'll, I'll, I have one of those uh, wristbands that have a, a near field, uh, RFID thing. And so you just yeah. hold your, you just hold your wristband to the phone and it, boom, here comes all the websites and all the social oh, media cool. stuff for the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of cool little gadget. So instead of handing out business cards left and right, I, I can just have them scan it. And most, you know, aviators are pretty hip on the technology. Savvy, Captain pulls yeah. out a phone. He goes, you mean with this? And he <laughs> flips it open. <laughs> he shows me the monochrome. I'm like, oh, <laughs> OTG buddy. All right. Off the grid. I like it. <laughs> and he's like, like well, maybe can I scan it with my tablet? Like, Your EFB? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me show you how that works. Can you turn the Bluetooth on? Well, let me see how you do that. Hold on a second. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, that's funny as hell. Yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, you know, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up the show here, I just, again, want to say thank you. Um, you know, a couple more things. Uh, goals for the future. What what are you looking forward to here? Well, goals for the future. Yeah, I guess um, my goal here at Sandpiper is to upgrade and spend a year as a captain. 
And uh, right now the industry is, is on an upswing again. You know, we're trying to uh, get out of this coronavirus thing here and uh, people are starting to hire. And uh, my goal is to spend a year as a captain here, get some quality time and I guess reassess the situation after a year. Uh, whether it's uh, to stay at Sam Piper and eventually flow to uh, Legacy or uh, explore other options. Um, but really, you know, I, this is a career, you know, that I want to stay in. And um, I don't want to make a whole lot more moves. I'd like to make just one more move and be done with it. So uh, I guess a year from now, uh, ask me the same question. We'll see. And I should have a better definite answer for you. Oh, absolutely. Mark it in your calendar, buddy. <laughs> now, we, we wanted to kind of wrap it up with your reaction to some of the chaos that is happening in the industry with weather phenomena that are creating cancellations and diversions and overbooked flights and not enough staffing and not enough contracted out services and, and everything's just kind of, I mean, all you got to do is flip on your social media news feed and you're just riddled with one dramatic news story after the other. The 5M love this stuff. This is all fodder for those that are like, oh, look what's happening. And, you know, mm -hmm. and most of the stuff is unsubstantiated. Like there was no strike. <laughs> there was a rumor I heard. Oh yeah. The pilots over at the, this yeah. airline over here are striking. I'm like, uh, that's illegal. No. They're not striking. I mean, they can have a slowdown or something, but yeah. that's federal law that they, <laughs> if you're an airline pilot at a 121, you can't strike. That's that National yep. Railway Act that Rob was mentioning earlier. So do you think, have you seen this trend over at Sandpiper? And do you think that it's going to continue much longer? You know, I haven't seen cancellations on our end here at Sandpiper. You know, um, uh, schedules are definitely uh, improving. I guess for us, we're flying more. We're having a lot less, um, you know, sitting around in hotels. You know, we're doing four or five legs a day. And, and not as many lost days. Um, so cancellations, I don't see it on our end. I do see it more on the, um, you know, uh, majors, you know, uh, they're canceling flights and also uh, low cost carriers. But as far as same fight, we're, we're flying, we're doing as many flights as we can, you know, possibly. Um, but I, I'm not seeing the, the craziness, uh, I guess, as uh, you mentioned um, in the news here, you know, at, at Sandpiper, I haven't personally experienced yeah. any of that. Now being, you've been based in Chicago now for your entirety over at Sandpiper. Has the flying out of Chicago improved at all over the past few months? Uh, definitely. I, I think that, uh, well, as I just stated, it was, we had quite a bit of lost days, you know, that's where, uh, for the listeners, right. They, uh, where we are just sitting in a hotel all day long, you know, uh, Throughout COVID, we had a lot of this where we'd be gone for four days and one of those days would just be spent in a hotel. So the flying definitely has improved. Um, on the 145 side, on the 175, which is a large aircraft there uh, for Chicago, um, the flying has actually decreased. So, um, yeah, they, uh, there's a lot of lines in, in Dallas and in, in Miami, but on the 145 side in Chicago, or I'm sorry, the 175 side in Chicago, uh, the flying has decreased. So everyone's a little worried about that. But um, 145, it's kind of been, you know, it's uh, 
it's been steady, really steady, in, increasing, I think. You know, recently we've been talking about some of the elements that have created chaos here in the industry. We're not going to get into detail over what's been going on from first officers making religious homophobic PAs that <laughs> were just really uncomfortable to listen to in a captive audience to, you know, Spirit Airlines canceling more than 50% of their flights over the last four or five days and their CEO coming back was going, well, it's weather and we're trying really hard um, <laughs> to American Airlines having weather issues in Dallas, which I actually was a part of maybe on the next show. We'll kind of get into the details of how that fiasco came about. But the one item that really caught my eye that just I, I was in stitches <laughs> Uh, was an incident that happened on Frontier. Now, extremely bad behavior is not uncommon from the low-cost carriers. And unfortunately, one passenger had to be restrained by being duct tape to their seat. Now, it was packaging tape, not duct tape or duct tape, <laughs> however you say it. But this passenger, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes uh, from a, a link from Variety.com, was taped after groping one of the flight attendants, yelling at them, telling them how my parents are rich and could buy this airplane, and it was terrible. But not unusual. But where the true response came was from the reaction that the flight attendant in question, who was put on administrative leave almost immediately from Frontier, was posting a video on YouTube and it was picked up by one of the morning TV shows. May I add real quick? It was paid administrative lead. <laughs> yes. Pending investigation. And it was yep. fantastic. Let's take a listen. Of a belligerent passenger causing sheer chaos in the air. And it got so bad that flight attendants had to duct tape the man to his seat. Ever since masks were required on airplanes, flight attendants say that their work has become downright dangerous. Now understand something. I'm a flight attendant. That means I attend the flights. Sometimes our job has us attending to crazy people. If you push us too far, you're gonna have to attend this ass whooping. You see, because on this particular flight, I'm sitting in the jump seat and I'm just looking at him like the damn fool. He's spitting and cussing and going crazy. I say, that's enough. I got up and I walked over there. And by the way, this man smelled like a pack of Marlboro cigarettes, uh, four shots of Everclear alcohol and regret. So I know something's about to go down. At this point, he touching all over my coworker's breast. And where he fucked up at is when he touched my titties. Cause I don't play that. So what I did is I took out the duct tape. I said, he got scared, start stuttering. Say, hold up, wait a minute, something ain't right. I said, yeah, we about to mummify your ass now, boy. So we wrapped him up. Better than any Christmas present you ever see. He won't be coming on no more Frontier flights at all. Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. Oh, oh boy! Their their reaction. Awesome! <laughs> oh my god! 
Holy cow. Oh, that was gosh. the first time I've seen that. Their that reaction to that. Incredible. Oh, classic. Classic. I'm a mummified ass. Better than any Christmas present. Although the news information was actually legitimate, the part of that video that depicted the interview for the flight attendant has actually been proven to be fake. He's a comedian, and you can find him on YouTube on The Real Spark. It's a channel on YouTube. What he does is he takes real news articles and then interjects himself as being interviewed. So although the news feed was real, the interview portion was absolutely a fake. However, thank you. That was very entertaining. Yeah. Definitely. That was good. Well, as we wrap up Flight 86 of the Squawk Ident podcast, I just want to say thank you to Pete. You've uh, shared some amazing stories. I've learned quite a bit about your journey, and man, you've really inspired me with how you've handled yourself throughout multiple emergency scenarios throughout your career. Uh, Hopefully, someone listening who may find themselves (laughs) in a similar situation will remember what you went through and it could save their life potentially yeah thank you so much for having me it's uh actually been really fun and uh i hope to you know speak with you again and maybe you know hop on the show in the future sometime absolutely no hey pete it has been a pleasure talking to you and listening to your story and uh good luck on that upgrade um it's it's well worth the uh you know all the hard work you're gonna have to put into it and um, hopefully we'll see you over at Legacy one day and we'll be able to uh, share some more stories and go out and get one of those, uh, uh, you know, go for the run and <laughs> go out for yeah. uh, some Cuban food. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's the plan, you know, is cool. uh, just, con- just to continue. So, yeah, nice meeting you. And look forward to chatting again sometime. Absolutely. Right on, man. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming along on this journey with us by listening to our podcast. As Flight 86 is starting its final descent into the virtual airport, we here at Squawk Ident would like to thank you for flying. Please help us out. Make sure to subscribe and follow the Squawk Ident podcast. And if you would just spend a moment and take the time to write a review on either Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the show, it really does help us out on the standings. We appreciate your support and especially your feedback. You can send us audio feedback directly through our email, which you can find on our website, or you can send us on the contact us tab, some audio feedback as well there, or just send us a note. You can find our website at www.aviatortony.com. That's alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. And you can find audio archives, photos from the flight line, our Squawk Ident pilot shop, and our guest book photo tab as well. You can also contribute to the show financially right there from the homepage with either a one-time or recurrent donation. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under the Squawk Ident podcast. One big final thank you to Rob D. and Pete Tenderinda. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, y'all. See ya. On guard. You're on guard. On guard. On guard. Where'd he go? There, where is he?
What? You're on guard. You're on guard. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> Who let the guard dogs out? <laughs> uh, 